Hi, everybody, and welcome to Full Marks. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about At the Circus. At the Circus, indeed. Originally going to be titled A Day at the Circus. Oh, why, what was uh, the change? This is the first bit of trivia Dave's going to give you. Uh, but there'll be more to come, so to this come. is a good warm-up. This is an amuse-bouche I don't know before why. we get going. I don't know why. Yeah, there you go. And that's I guess hopefully the rest of the trivia will have uh, more follow-through than that. I'm going to... Well, you know, sometimes you just have to speculate on why things were. That, like, There's no reason for it. They didn't leave like a memo, I think. But it was, you know, in the original script, it was titled A Day at the, a Day at the Circus. Okay. And that may have just been the screenwriter's idea of what it should be called and the studio didn't want to continue on with the a day and a night feeling like you've already run out of times of the day <laughs> you know you couldn't do an afternoon at the right. circus or morning at the hope circus. and hope and crosby didn't uh, have that same problem with the on the road movies well because they were but if the, every movie they were going to uh utopia or no but they're to, not but they're, that's the thing yeah. it's like they changed locations exactly. so at the so circus we're, at we're, the races sure. it uh, yeah, kind of yeah. makes sense yeah Oh well, whatever they uh, whatever they did, uh, we go. That's fine. Uh, let let me just explain the premise of this show to you, as I try to do at the beginning of every episode. Uh, uh, David is a hardcore Marx Brothers fan. Uh, you've enjoyed them. That's for right. Many many years. I think we've proved on this show that I am a fan and not an expert. Uh, either hey, an expert is just a fan that has not had looked up enough stuff. I don't know what I'm saying. I've got no idea. Thank you. I don't even know how to do intros to things, but <laughs> Dave's forcing me to do them. Uh, and so uh, what he's doing every episode is he's looking, he's seen all the Marx Brothers films. Uh, he's giving them a second glance. He's doing some research on the history of the Marx Brothers. So he's going to give you a bit of that. And then we're going to get into the film itself. I uh, make my living as a comedian. I write for Mad Magazine, uh, New Yorker cartoons. I used to write The Simpsons and Futurama comic books and i am a marx brothers fan culturally but i have not seen all the movies so many of these including the one that we're seeing today uh i'm seeing for the very first time and we're working chronologically through them all yes. now a lot of people have said after our last okay after uh a day at the races yeah oh here we go it's going to be downhill <laughs> from here yes that's they 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 warned me yep and so I lowered my expectations. Well, that's good, because that could often help you. Yeah, it, it was not a bad <laughs> place to be, because my expectations, I think, were maybe raised too high for, say, a duck soup. Yeah. Which everyone went, oh, duck soup. Mm-hmm. And then for me, it was like, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, whereas I'm just going to do a general thing of just saying, I was pleasantly surprised by this one, because I thought it was not good, especially after last the last show where uh, we had a room service. And pretty, a pretty bland film. Well, it wasn't really a Marx Brothers film to yeah. me. Like, there was Marx Brothers elements mm-hmm. to it, but they weren't themselves in yeah. it. They've, they they had motivations that didn't seem right for the mm-hmm. Marx Brothers mm-hmm. uh, and because it was based on a play and they were kind of shoehorned into yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas this felt, uh, oh, it was just it was just fun to see the guys again. It was, it was it was a treat, and then I, I think like if you were a, even if you were a little kid, mm-hmm. this might be your very favorite because it's got a lot of good physical business in it, especially at the end. Yeah, I think if it's I think if you came to this Marx Brother film without having seen any of the prime Paramount ones, you would enjoy this movie. You wouldn't have any criticism criticism of it based on past experience. You know, just one one thing about Room Service, we had a couple of listeners. And that's how many we need to keep the show going. <laughs> Who um, asked why I didn't mention that the Marx Brothers had thought of not playing their characters for room service. And the reason I didn't say that is because I didn't know that. That was a, a new fact to me. Oh, so that's, that's interesting. No, that's no excuse. But I think... Ignorance of a fact is no excuse for not uh, being an expert on it. But it is bliss. Mm. But think... But, you know, they, 
thinking about it, I can't imagine that, that went very far because I think if you're RKO and you've paid out all this money for the Marx Brothers and the idea that they're going to be in a film and not play themselves, just play the characters from the from the from the play and not be in their Marx, Marxian characters, I think mm. you would I think you'd be a little hesitant to to allow that to go through. You know, yeah. so if the Marxes were thinking of it, Paul Rubens doesn't get a lot of lead roles as Paul Rubens. No, no. But Pee Wee, yes, perhaps, yes, yeah. And Ernest did a lot of movies. Yes, he did. Yes, and if, Jim Varney and other lead mm-hmm. roles, Beverly mm-hmm. Hillbillies, maybe. But that's about it. Yeah, yeah. But he, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, for the Marx Brothers, you kind of feel like by that point in their career, they had solidly cemented themselves as those characters in the public imagination. Wouldn't it be disturbing to see them not be those characters? I think it would. Well, like, if you saw the three of them together, it would just be... Three jar- of them together, yeah. Yeah, it would be jarring to see... Well, first of all, is Harpo talking or not? The second he opens his mouth, that breaks a magic spell that mm-hmm. you've got with him. Yeah. That's strange. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second, Chico is not speaking with the accent. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Now mm-hmm. you're just a guy. Yeah. And ha- does Groucho have the same timing, but just not the, s- the same lilt? Yeah. Uh, like, he doesn't have the mustache, I would assume. Sure. But, sure. again, it would just be kind of kind of jarring. Yeah, and Ch- Chico, who is notoriously notoriously ill-prepared for his role, uh, just because his lifestyle did not allow for much rehearsal time and things like that, I want, you know, I wonder if without having his Italian accent to carry the part where... You know, he can just say, that's a fine. You know, instead of having to remember a bunch of lines, he can just go, that's a fine. That's mm-hmm. a fine, boss. And the other person's like speeding through like a page of dialogue to get to their, to their line, you know. I think yeah, it would... because it's a farce. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, a, it's, it's a bedroom farce. It's a heavy on the, yeah. heavy on the, the dialogue as well. And I don't know. I just, I mean, I thought that they did a, a good job carrying that, that film. Right. If they did as good as they could playing their characters in that, in that thing. What it feels like to me is... They weren't lazy. No, it, it feels almost like uh, when, say, uh, Woody Allen would do... Uh, he's doing... What, what, what was the... With Peter Falk, uh, the the Golden Boys, the... the, the you know, it's the one uh, where uh, the, the, the two old vaudeville fellas, and uh, it's a very... I know you're talking about it's Walter Matthau and... It's, uh, and it's the and and George Burns in the in the in the better version of the movie. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. There's a different version of yeah. The film? There was a television version. Oh, okay. That was the Peter, Sunshine that, Boys. Sunshine Boys. It was Peter Falk and Woody Allen. Mm. So you hire Woody Allen and you get him to you know be Woody Allen esque, but yes. not the full Allen that you sure. get. I guess that's in like the front page. Like the front page as well. Yeah. Maybe you get that as well, where you just have... oh, just the front. You just hit the front of Woody Allen. No, I'm just saying it wasn't called the front page. That was a very different movie. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. The front. Sorry. Sorry. You're right. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like someone would watch the movie The Front Page. Uh, enjoy the movie. It's very good. Mm. But we're going, missed Woody Allen. Where, yeah. <laughs> where was he? Yeah. He was hit, hiding in the desk the whole movie. So, so David, where are the Marx Brothers at this point in history? Well, as you know, we're just talking about room service. So uh, while they were filming room service, they actually re-signed to MGM. Um because MGM came, I think because A Day of the Races was such a huge success. It was a bigger success than Night of the Opera, which was a big success. Like Night of the Opera made like $5 million, which I assume at that time was pretty good money. Right. Uh, and I don't know the exact amount that A, Night of, uh, a Day of the Races made, but it made more than that. And we were talking before, they were getting 15% of, of the gross of those films. So they made really good money out of those movies. Really good money. And there's absolutely no reason for them. If they didn't want, if they wanted just to stop making movies or stop being entertainers, they could have. Well, Harpo and 
Yes. And Groucho could have. Not the person who's a compulsive gambler. And that was the reason that they kept making movies more than anything was, was Chico's financial, dire financial straits. But they had him on a salary, didn't they? Or they, they, they this were... is when they started doing that around the time of room service. So this film, they were able to take 50% of his money and put it aside for him. Boy, there's someone out there who made a lot of money off the Marx Brothers. That uh, was just the the people who bet against Chico. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Like there, a, yeah. millions were made, <laughs> probably, and, and put into the economy mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, yeah. that. He was the uh, one of the. He was the second largest industry in California. Yeah, it's a it's a sad compulsion, <laughs> but uh, again, good for uh, good for the coffers. It is a sad compulsion. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And you wonder. Hmm. I mean, obviously, he had the personality for it, but then he also grew up in a situation where his what would have been his older brother had died. In infancy, and so he was obviously the golden boy, you know, like he would have been just so beloved and 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 coddled and and never, you know, just allowed, given the longest rope, you know, because you know he was the boy who lived after after right. his brother had died, and so, you know, I feel like he probably was spoiled quite a bit growing up, unlike say Groucho and Harpo, who you know Har- Harpo at an incredibly early age, I think grade grade three was out of school and working. Oh wow! Where you know, I think uh, Groucho went to about grade seven. What's the what's the age grouping here? Who's the oldest? Chico was the oldest. Chico was the oldest. Then Harpo. Then Groucho. And then a distant second was Seppo. In between was Gummo. Gummo was Gummo and Groucho were fairly close together. Seppo was kind of that spring surprise that okay. sometimes comes on, on families. So yeah, despite having uh, signed to RKO for three pictures, they signed a three picture deal. And so they only produced one in the shape of the uh, underwhelming room service. So the Marxists signed a three-picture deal with MGM with a clause that allowed them to work on outside projects. And that was there simply in case RKO demanded the other two movies. Okay. That would allow them to, to also do now, a Now, did side. room service make money or just not enough money compared lost, to... It lost $330,000. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was a lot of money. Yeah. That it, it lost. Just losing money is something. Okay. Mm-hmm. So obviously with that bath that RKO took on that on that film. And RKO was not structured to take that kind of loss as a, as a studio. They're a real, they were a really streamlined operation that, you know, didn't have a lot of money to throw around and big, big, uh, financial, uh, crashes like that weren't helpful for them. I mean, they had big hits as well. They had Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies that were, you know, I'm, I assume big money spinners that worked for them, but, you know, they were of extremely low cost, studio they weren't like at mgm they weren't pumping out movies they weren't you know all the stars in the in the galaxy or whatever the mgm yeah logo i can't remember what it was but you know what i mean they had all the stars and everyone else has got whoever and they make it you know they make it stars on loan if they're lucky sure. like say say you're clark gable and you get in trouble at mgm and then you get loaned to columbia to do it happened one night you know which worked out well for him but when he was sent there he's going i don't want to go to poverty row and do movies in that those junky studios it's garbage but he did he had to but most of those studios republic and archeo and stuff they weren't really well thought of as like great studios archeo had a good a good because of david oselznik who came in and brought in this sort of idea of units of having specific units based around directors who would be kind of uh, producer directors and would guide their own units it made it more streamlined. He brought cost down that way, mm-hmm. and and he could. So he wasn't having to have a whole bunch of middle management in between him and the directors, and who were also producing and and had you know. So it worked better that way for him and allowed for more creativity. 
And it seemed to work that way better. Like if you look at MGM when they had the Arthur Freed unit, which was their musical movie unit, it was an incredibly efficient and successful operation during the time that it lasted. You know, it had so much talent in it. You know, all the writers, all the musical arrangers, everyone was super talented. And they all worked under Arthur Freed, who worked independently of the control of, say, Louis B. Mayer or whoever okay. was, you know, acting as head of production. But anyway, that's kind of going off the top. Now, here's a, just a quick question. Uh, so you were saying they were getting 15% of the gross of these films. Mm-hmm. Were they on salary as well? Yes, they got okay. they got two to fifty thousand dollars per. All right, per so movie. they didn't so they didn't make money on their lot. Mm-hmm. They weren't in the hole for room service. You mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, room service. Yeah, they got they got two to fifty thousand dollars. That was the most that they made up to that time in their okay. career. Uh, they each got two fifty, and they were I think supposed to get a cut of the uh, cut of the profits as well, but there were no profits to, to cut. So. And you say it was like three hundred fifty thousand dollars in the hole. 330 yeah 330 yeah so that's interesting i wonder like how that compares like if the raise in their salary if it would have broke even if they didn't have the big salary well if they didn't have that or the, or if they hadn't if archeo hadn't gotten into a bidding war over room service and yeah. paid $255,000 for it. Well, there for we go. A, okay. I can see a lot of factors here yeah, that are, exactly, that are yeah. problems. I know when people say it what, it didn't make money and uh, there's a problem with mm-hmm, it and all mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. You've just laid out yeah. a bunch of additional <laughs> expenses that the other movies did not have. That's right. They've inflated their costs way, way above what... Because, you know, for MGM or Paramount... Those movies, even though they had a bunch of writers on them, those writers were not making more than much more than scale. Maybe, maybe um, George S. Kaufman could demand more. Mm-hmm. But the other, you know, the other people are all beginner writers, like Perelman and Will B. Johnstone, and all those people that were writing uh, Kelmer and Ruby. All of them were like just starting out, and you know, Kelmer and Ruby were successful songwriters, but they weren't big time scriptwriters. So, sure. you know, people would say, "Well, you're great songwriters, but you're not scriptwriters. We can't pay you, you know, Ben Hecht money or whatever." You know, yeah. That's a little different. That's right. It's not Ben Hecht money. <laughs> By the way, that's the expression Dave and I use like all the time. Was like, uh, you get a raise at work. I did, yeah, but it's not Ben Hecht money. Let's. I was just, crazy. It was. Uh, it was pretty good. I was just trying to think of a writer of that time. No, no, I just was... love. It was a great deep cut. <laughs> He's not, not ben that Hecht. Deep. Well, it'll come around. You know, uh, one day hope it, to be rich. It'll not Ben Hecht rich, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, By the way, uh, the siren went by just a couple of seconds ago. I want to say thank the person who reviewed our uh, sh- uh, our show on. I think it was I think it was on iTunes and said enjoy the uh, sirens. Yeah, uh, even though we uh, could cut them out, we don't. I was like, I don't I don't think we can cut them out. Yeah, I do cut them out. Oh, do you cut them out? I do cut out as uh, much as I can. Oh well, there we go. <laughs> but but we still have there's still the, the lingering you know coming and going of the right. siren that we look talk we're over saying once they catch the arsonist it's gonna go <laughs> it's gonna go away but until that time that's right. we thank you for your patience <laughs> so i was wondering to myself why why the marxists returned to mgm because there were other studios that were were like paramount wanted them back mm-hmm. and other studios were, were bidding trying to bid um so i was thinking well one I, I one is the scene of their biggest successes. True. Night of the Opera and Day of the Races. So they felt like MGM had the winning formula that they could just sort of plug themselves into and they would take them, you know, and these and they, movies would be... So they experimented. They went to Archeo. It was a flop. Yeah. So what does that tell you? MGM know how to handle us. So we're yeah, going to go also back Also, they probably treat you well. If, if you know, you're the fellows that yeah. made these two big hit films for them. Mm-hmm. Well, well, welcome home, prodigal son. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's glad, good to see you. So, yeah, that was my second was their, their experience at Archeo demonstrated that not every studio knew how to craft suitable, suitable vehicles for them. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not necessarily the studio, it's the producer 
it's the director, it's the writers, it's the team you put together around the Marx Brothers that's mm-hmm. going to make it, uh, you know, make it tick. If you don't have the right elements, it's not going to work as well. So comfort. So despite their complaints about the tedium of making movies, or maybe because of them, the Marxists were reluctant to make changes to winning formulas. So that's why Sam Wood, even though they couldn't stand making the movies with him, you know, he made them do 20 takes at a time, and et cetera, et cetera. He filmed their first two MGM movies. They didn't change him to the second movie. Why? Because it was a winning formula. Don't change what works. Yeah. You know, even though we're having to now do 30 takes for our day of the races, it's a winning formula. This is going to work, you know. Right. So, Groucho um, has a grease paint must- mustache. Yeah. Does yeah. it make sense? As we go along? No. No. It really doesn't. No. But. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they didn't like Sam Wood, but they were comfortable not liking him. You know, so it just worked for them. And then also, yeah, I also point out that be, besides Chico's condition, you know, financial standing, there's no reason for Groucho and Harpo to make movies anymore. So they would want to go to a place that's comfortable, not that's hard work. The prestige of working for MGM. The biggest studio in Hollywood with the most stars. Mm-hmm. So that has some it's a cachet to it. Sure. And then, also important, $250,000 per picture for their contract, plus a $50,000 bonus if the movie came in under a million dollars for its budget. All right. So that was incentive. That that's was incentive for them. to get it done, yeah. That's incentive for them to stay on, on, uh, on the uh, straight and narrow and not uh, act like the Marx Brothers. And I was thinking that the contract was probably negotiated by, Chick- by Chico, Perhaps as a way to show Zeppo and Gummo that he also knew how to negotiate deals, not just them. Uh, you know, he could be an agent. He had been, a, you know, he basically taken over from his mom when he joined the act, acting as the agent for the Marx Brothers. So when Zeppo stepped in and, and negotiated the RKO one, there's probably a little bit of chafing wow, by Chico okay. on that one. So now at MGM, the head of production, he was, uh, he was appointed in 1938, was Mervyn Leroy. Now, he was a pretty good director before he became a producer and head of production. He did uh, Little Caesar, the uh, Edward okay, D. Robinson yeah. film. He did I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Game, the Paul Mooney film. So he had a lot of movies. He had, had some experience under his belt. And he was appointed by Louis B. Mayer, head of production for MGM in 1938. One of the first things he started doing was he started to get The Wizard of Oz in production. That was like his big project. So that was an ongoing project while A Day at the Races was being made. But I think for himself, seeing I'm head of production, I'm the new Thalberg, I have to be, I have to, it's up to me to create a winning movie for the Marx Brothers, just like Irving Thalberg was able to do. So, um, he, uh, I think, I think, and I think that's why there's some carryover between the two films. Mm. So for instance, the guys who wrote the music for At the Circus, Harold Arlen and EY, in quotation marks, Yip Harburg, uh, wrote a lot of the music for, for, um, the Wizard of Oz, including Somewhere oh. Over the Rainbow. Okay. So besides Lydia, the tattooed lady, the rest mm-hmm. of them songs in the, at the circus are garbage. But the songs for at Wizard of Oz are great. So maybe they're just having a little bit of burnout. Or they knew, instinctively knew, that when you make songs for a Marx Brothers film, make them stinkers because that's what makes that bit of sleepy time is what bre- elevates the rest of the movie. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, interesting. It's also a fact that Irving Berlin, a surefire hit songwriter has written some of the greatest songs of all time, you know, in the Great American Songbook, so-called, uh, you know, produced nothing of, of any note for, for the coconuts. Mm-hmm. So it might just be that the Marx Brothers themselves, just kind of stymie songwriters, they don't really know what to do, uh, unless they're Calmer and Ruby, who just sort of created like light operetta settings for, for Groucho. Yeah. 
they weren't really sure what Gilbert and Sullivan esque yeah. uh, numbers, a lot of fast yeah. patter. And these guys were like, okay, we got to do like kind of a witty romantic song, I guess. Yeah, that builds, and yeah. we'll we'll get to we'll get to the song sure, itself. But sure. yeah, um, so Irving Brecker, who was the screenwriter for for At the Circus, was one of the guys who did the rewrites on Wizard of Oz. Oh, really? And then, okay. by the way, Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. has some uh, has some good jokes in it. It yeah. has some it has some little aside jokes sure. that you're like. Sure. Which you don't again when you grow up uh, watching it, you're a kid yeah. and you just take it as is. Sure. And uh, then later on, you're going, "Oh, that's pretty. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good." Yeah. Like all the wizards stuff that he's giving them at the end, it's like these are all pretty, uh, pretty interesting bits of satire we're laying down here. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, and then Jerry Marin or Marengi, as he's credited in the film, uh, the midget actor was. Mm-hmm also in the Wizard of Oz in the Munchkinland sequence. So there's people that they kind of brought over or, you know, some... I was not 100% sure that wasn't a child when I watched it the first time. But sure he's, got, he's young. He's sure he's very young, uh, but he's got he's got that voice mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it, it sounds tough to say this, but he's almost got that Munchkin-esque, yeah, you yeah. know, a little... Uh, it almost sounds like the throat is squeezed a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, it does good physical business in this. He does? Yeah. I yeah. think uh, I think I think he does. Yeah, yeah, it just plays off the Marx Brothers mm-hmm. quite well. Yeah, yeah. In a uh, you know, we'll get to it, but in a way that <laughs> Dumont is able to, where it's that constant. Oh well, now we've made the peace. Now yeah. I'm mad at you. Now yeah. we've made the peace again. Everything's fine. Now we're all great. <laughs> hey, what, oh, are you trying to pull something here? I'm going to sue you. No, everything's fine. That's good. We're all friends here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a tough thing to do, but he does it. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, that's true. Um. So yeah. So I was going to say. So as the new Tholberg at MGM. Uh, Leroy obviously felt it was responsible f- to make this new Marx Brothers film, and probably he thought it would be fun and easy to do, unlike The Wizard of Oz, which was a very complicated production with changing actors, with 11 different writers, with four different directors. You know, so let's take all the headaches of The Wizard of Oz and just put them aside, and we'll have some fun doing the Marx Brothers film. Uh, but I think his idea of making it fun, he kind of simplified making the movie like so in order to make it easier to make he streamlined it because he's already embroiled in this complicated wizard of oz so let's kind of streamline making a marx brother film mm-hmm. so it was his decision to place the marx brothers in a circus and a lot of people object to the to the marx brothers in a circus why is that because if because the marx brothers belong in a circus they don't belong in an opera they don't belong in a mm-hmm. steamship they don't belong in a pr- university right a circus what's different between them and the other performers it's all you know, it's all burlesque. It's all mad, madcap fun. And yet it, it isn't. It's clowning this. and stuff like that. But it's not. This movie does it differently, though. Yeah, it's a thing. It does like, the smart thing, it I does, think. It does the smartest thing, which is like there's not a clown in it. Mm-hmm. It's a completely mm-hmm. clown-free circus. Yeah. It's a very yeah. dry circus that if children went to it, they'd go, oh, <laughs> I don't know. What's, what's, what's this a, all about? Yeah, exactly. So they can play off of, uh, you know, arrogant strongmen yeah, and yeah. Uh, and scary lions mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and things. And everyone's everyone's pretty straight. Very I agree straight with you. Yeah. Circus. I didn't yeah. say I agree with them. I just think some people objected to that idea. Right. But, if, if they're playing off a clown. Yeah. Then we got then we got issues. No, I think it plays it really well because it basically it takes the circus setting and it puts a totally straight story into that circus setting, which almost has nothing to do with a circus at all. You could have that story about the ten thousand dollars disappearing. It could be about a guy's sporting goods store. It doesn't really matter what you know, it's just but the circus setting yeah, allows the, for some flexibility in characters. And, the only and problem I had with with that, if you want to just break you know, go with the reality, and if I'm doing that with a Marx Brothers movie, what am I doing? 
but it looks like you know, when, I was, when I was originally seeing, like, oh, there are any clowns? Like, oh, okay. Well, Harpo is punchy as the clown. Yeah. Because that he's got he's with the strong man yeah. and he's lighting yeah. things and he's like looking goofy sure. and he's doing a bunch of reactions mm-hmm. and he's like shoots the guy in the butt and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. I'm like, all right, but but it's like no 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 no. He's just supposed to be helping. But people are la- people are enjoying him as yeah, the clown. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, he's just like this. He's just a normal guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then he's totally like he's even more clowny off yeah. than he is on. Yeah. So that's where it gets a little weird. Yeah, yeah. He's it's, like he's got magic powers away from the circus, <laughs> and has a cane that can shoot water out when necessary. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. Again, more stuff we'll get to later on. Sure. Sure. Yeah, there was two ideas kind of floating around at the time. One was to have the Marx Brothers at a circus. The other was to have the Marx Brothers at, at a World's Fair. Mm. And I think because in 1939, that was the New York World's Fair, mm-hmm. which was like a big deal in that at that time. Right. And so there's lots of talk about World's Fair, World's Fair, World's Fair. And so the idea would be to let's latch on to the World's Fair and we'll have the Marx Brothers perform at the World's Fair. Okay. That sounds very expensive. Yeah. And I think that's probably what they thought. And yeah. Went, hmm. No. Yeah. Uh, whereas a circus is one tent. Yeah. And then like a lot of cages and a lot of hay on the ground. Yeah. And then we got to build a, a room for the little person. It's a small room. Great. Yeah. yeah that sounds good. Yeah. Good on the budget. <laughs> After spending too much money last time, learn from the mistakes. I know mm-hmm. it's a different studio, but learn from the mistakes. Yes. Uh, it was also Leroy's decision to bring in Irving Brecker as a screenwriter. He would, the, it's important to note that he was under personal contract to Leroy. So, it was a good reason for him to use him. He's already paying him a salary, so write a movie. And Brecker, besides providing gags for radio comedians and working as a script doctor at MGM at that time, had never written a screenplay up until At the Circus. Mm. And unlike other Marx Brothers films, which credited three or four writers for the screenplay, which with many more working behind the scenes, Brecker wrote At the Circus by himself. So his personality and sense of humor as writer dominates the movie. And I think that's what made... It's one, my one complaint about that film is it's sort of one note in the humor, whereas the other works with the films, you get kind of a lot of just different kind of gags. You get, yeah. you know, wordplay, you get puns, or that's what sort of thing. But you get, you know, you get sardonic comments, you get wordplay, you get nonsense, you get the Harpo-esque stuff, you get the double talk. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of go around. At the Circus doesn't really have like a variety of things. No. It has a lot of throwaway kind of gag lines, uh, and that's about it. You know, it doesn't really have much more than that. Yeah. And not having more, th- and only having one writer, it doesn't really allow for that kind of build of gags where one guy starts and the other guy goes, oh, but what we could do is da 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 da. And you kind of build on, on the gags as you go. It, it lacks that element to it as well because it's just him by himself writing. And we seem to have completely lost uh, Chico uh, getting words wrong now. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was such a strong part of what he used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Viaduct, yeah. yeah you, you, and you, and you, uh, sanity clause and so, and <laughs> yeah, so on. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you can use that as a punchline or you mm-hmm. can use it to escalate and infuriate. Yeah. Or you can use it to just get something wrong and go off in another direction mm-hmm. comedically. Mm-hmm. And it just seems a weird thing to just completely abandon that element of his, uh, of his character. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only person he collaborated with was, was Harpo, who, uh, came in every once in a while to work up visual gags. That would make sense, yeah. Because that's Tarpo tend to do that anyway. Like he worked with Bill B. Johnston for a long time on the Paramount films, where they would just work separately from whoever else was writing the movie and just created gags that they would try to shoehorn into the into the script. And usually they would replace not very good gags that the more verbal writers would would come up with. Because you know, Harpo kind of knows himself best. One of the one of the people who worked in the picture uncredited was uh Buster Keaton. 
who at that time was working as a hundred dollar a week gag man, which is quite a drop from whatever he was making when he was at his height, five thousand dollar a week or whatever. But still pretty good money, yeah, probably. And but his style of comedy didn't really mesh very well with the Marx Brothers because his style of comedy is very technical and it requires a lot of you know planning and it's all like one of his gags was um was was Harpo going through the circus and there's a camel and there's some hay on the ground and he puts the hay on the camel and he doesn't see on the side the keeper bends down and the camel lowers and so Harpo thinks by putting the hay the straw on the camel he's broken its back yeah and then he takes oh. it off and then the camel goes back up again well he told that to the Merck brothers and Groucho looked at him deadpan and said do you think that's funny you know, like they just to them and it was literally wasn't. to him that was the last straw. And he <laughs> he <up>. Well, <laughs> Buster Keaton said, "I'm only here because Mr. Mayor's wants me to be here. You guys don't need me. You can right. do this on your own." You but the nice thing though is, it really you don't see it like knocking the smile off his face, right? Yeah, you just see like, oh, he's he's still sad about that. Okay, let's <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah. That's too bad. There's just, something there. There's definitely yeah. something there with the yeah. with the camel. Well, bit. but if you think of Buster Keaton doing it, yeah. Then it works because Buster Keaton would bring a delicateness to it, uh, you know, uh, not a not a broad kind of comedy that Harpo would bring. He would have that very kind of gentle, you know, take a little bit off and then it goes. You know, you know, what I mean, he, he would play it differently. Yeah, he would also just be good in a circus movie. <laughs> yeah, Buster yeah. Keaton in a circus movie with all that kind of chaos, yeah. and then yeah, in the stillness, yeah, the slow burn, yeah, and then, yeah. uh, get having to do stuff, walk a tightrope, uh, and do stuff, and mm. yeah, it'd, it'd be great. Yeah, it's too bad they didn't bring that. I don't trying to think in my mind going through all his shorts i know there's no feature with him in the circus but I'm trying to go through the shorts and isn't it by the way weird like that was the other thing was they would they would end this film uh just have elements in the circus that you're like well, what kind of circus is this yeah because you think like a circus all right we're gonna have a tightrope walker now we got someone who walks upside down mm-hmm. well that's not a thing it what it was was that was a thing yeah with suction cup shoes yeah, yeah. how physically does that work this is what you see in the movie. You see it from a distance. It's actually a performer her name was Janet May. What? And they discovered her while they were researching the movie, and they hired her to do that part. But she was the only one who was doing that. This wasn't a standard circus know. trick. I don't know. Right? Well, if they're making one pair of shoes, they would be making more than one pair. Okay, but okay, but you've never seen anyone else do this before or since, right? So either this works <laughs> so great that she copyrighted it, and she was the only one, yeah. or something horribly <laughs> went wrong, and people were never doing this again. But it was just a real kind of jarring. It seems. Well, what's what's this about? I feel like. What's it's... the gorilla do when you let it out and it tries to murder everybody? What's your gorilla trick? Then is it just you keep him in the cage and make him mad? Like that's the angle. That's not a circus. Well, we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to argue about gorillas with you right now. But uh, I, I'm going to argue about it. Apparently, I know we we did our gorillas in the mist podcast <laughs> and we had a really bad fight and we never put it on the air. So that's right. Uh, lesson learned. We, it was a missed opportunity. Huh? Thank you. I should have written. Let me just cro- quote Groucho. You think that's funny? <laughs> I do. Okay. Well, that's the straw that broke the camel's back at the end of the podcast. Another problem uh, for the screenplay was Meyer cutting the budget for the film. Oh. Made it uh, meant that there would be no tour to work out the gags, work mm. out timing. There was no audience. That, and for the Marx Brothers, like to them, this was like we have dis- we have figured out the way to make a, a great Marx Brothers film. We finally figured it out. And then they're like, no, we're not going to do that. What? So, uh, you know what I don't understand about that? But like mm. when they went on tour, people would pay to see those yeah, shows, right? Yeah, yeah. So what are you talking about? Money? Like, doesn't that pay for itself? You'd, you'd think so, yeah. You would think yeah. so. And also promotion for the film. Yeah, I don't see how that's a money loser in any way. Yeah. No, I think that was just bad 
bad. I'd say time wise. What's the word I'm looking for? Bad something or other. Management. Yeah. Fiscal management. Not bad. Not bad. Just bad faith. Okay. All you know I, what can I mean, s- like making. All, all I can see is it's time is money, and like it's, we're gonna waste time and yeah. take you on tour for a couple of weeks. Sure. No, that could be time that we shoot, yeah. and then we move on to a new movie. Yeah. You know, so well, that's probably it too. That they don't want to put any delays into making the film. Yeah. We don't want to go over a million dollars. You guys are gonna get fifty thousand um, dollars. And also, Brecker wasn't paid to be on set during the film. So there was no writer on set to to do revisions and to make corrections or figure you know figure out little bits if something's not working for the Marx Brothers. Um, so that's so. He, but he was on salary, so he was gracious enough to come in if called to to work on work through stuff for them. And here's the thing: no matter what this movie's like or Go West, which he also wrote, I can never hold anything against Irving Brecker because he co-wrote Meet Me in St. Louis, one of my all-time favorite musicals. So there you are. You know. I love that man. Very Just good. for that movie. <laughs> uh, it was Leroy's decision also to bring in Eddie Bazell, uh, who was a, an acquaintance of the Marx Brothers. He was a, a vaudeville star for a long time and then went, moved into movies, acted for a while, then became a director, mostly directed comedies. Um, and he liked to call the Marxes the O Boys. Because? They all end in O. Crocho, Chico. Uh, unlike the pragmatic Sam Wood, who directed Day at the Races and Night at the Opera, or the more... Um, what do you call it? The more kind of dreamy Norman Zed McLeod, who did Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. Bazell had a definite had definite ideas about how you film comedy and how comedy should work. When Wood and McLeod came in, they just pointed the cameras at the Marx Brothers and said, "Go, cool. well, I'll watch you guys perform." And, and it, well, we, Bazell came in and said, "I'm going to tell you guys how you, you make this work. Mm. I'm going to tell you guys how to be funny comics. Mm. You got to be faster. Pick up the pace, you guys." Well, uh, so that's not wrong, but okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he would tell them how, how often to, do you see, see a comedy and have someone go, that was too fast? No, it's true. Yeah. It's true. But you can also go too fast as well. You can, but if you're if you're a betting person, put the money on too fast. Like, I feel like uh, Groucho's first scene in this movie, as he comes out of the taxi cab, his voice is really high. It feels like he's really pushing that part a little too much. Okay. Um, and that <laughs> might be because of uh, Bazell's uh, desire to have pace. Let's go. Keep it up. Here's okay. I'm gonna give. Uh, I'm gonna give one little piece. Because we it. know that Groucho liked to have pauses in his jokes because he knew where the audience was gonna laugh. True. And so he had a sense of timing that often would bother people on set, but worked when the movie was shown in the theater That's because correct, yeah. he knew he knew the beats. And then yeah, if you did it live, you could like say, "Well, now we know for mm-hmm, sure that mm-hmm. this is where that that sure. happens." Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, and unfortunately, they did. They did not agree on how to play scenes. They fought through the whole movie. The, hmm. The Marx Brothers and the director. Um, there's at one point where uh, Bazell said to them, "I really want you guys to act this scene." Groucho said, "If you want dramatics, use our stand-ins." That would actually be a pretty funny scene. <laughs> like, <laughs> they just leave, and the stand-ins come in and just do an amazingly great dramatic role, and then just like and and Harpo never stops talking. Yeah, and then back in, and there they go. What's weird is that they had all these fights while making the movie, and when the movie was done, Bazell was going off to Europe or something on a trip, and so they took him on like a farewell dinner. There was four courses at four different places. And they had a restaurant, and then they went to another place, and then they went to a, like a wrestling match where they ate their dessert at this wrestling... No, it wasn't dessert wrestling match, but part of their dinner at the wrestling match. And then they finished off at a mortuary where they had their dessert and coffee. And then they sent him off on his trip. Aww. So it's weird. You know, like... I get, you know, Why is that weird to you? I, well, I just, it's interesting because they didn't take it personally. 
Yeah. You know, it's just part of the creative process. Yeah, it's, it's a stressful environment. Yeah, and at yeah. the end, but, but that's the thing. They've done so many movies mm-hmm. that they know not to hold a grudge at the end. And mm-hmm. then it's all part of the creative process, yeah. I, I, yeah. Would, I would think. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The people who did the, the design the film decided that the circus should have a streamlined kind of art deco look to it. Okay. So the production design incorporated a lot of chromium plating and weird ways too. Like, like you know, there's a scene where the the ringmasters are on a, like a stage mm-hmm. with like a bandstand behind them, mm-hmm. and there's there's these chairs. Like this chair is like he's going to do a talk show yeah. on the stage, and then in the scene where they show later on the film, there's uh, where they have like the main support holding up the tent. By the way, the tent was made entirely of artificial silk. So they didn't have like the bulkiness of canvas. It had this kind oh, of wow. flowing look to it. Yeah, you, I, I bet you noticed that too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I always here's so what expert. I here's what I always ask when I when I see a Marx Brothers movie. Yeah, I go like, uh, okay, uh, who was the writer? Mm-hmm. Who did the music? What was the thread count? <laughs> how much how much Egyptian cotton was used in this film? Yeah, yeah and but there's a scene where there's the center post that supports the tent, right? And it has like neon lights around it. And there's also neon lights in the animal cages and stuff like that. Mm. Like it seems it's kind of a weird circus. For, it's a very dream circus. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of what they wanted. Again, it does feel like a circus for someone who's never seen a circus, mm-hmm. but had a circus described to them <laughs> by someone who went. <laughs> Maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe that's what they wanted. Uh, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention about the writing of the film, which is, I was reading on it. I didn't read this in any of the research that I normally do, but I found this on a website, which is that Ben Hecht, who I mentioned earlier, and this is probably why it was in my mind, was he wrote an outline for uh, At the Circus, and which can, had a lot of the elements of the film in it. So I don't think he did a full screenplay, but he just did, just did an outline and, and maybe a treatment, and then Irving Brecker wrote from that. Now, I'm not sure if that's true or not, because these, you know, like I say, other sources that I used didn't mention it, so I'm I'm not entirely certain. If uh, anyone out there knows, as you usually do, please write us and let <laughs> yes, us know. Yes, please, please let me know if you have another source besides the one that I that I. I'm just curious. Um, so the film, for the most part, follows the pattern established by A Night of the Opera. Sure, that movie was a big success, so we know exactly how to make a Marx Brothers film now. So main plot: boy gets girl. Part of the story is set up early. Mm-hmm. Chico is introduced as good friends with the romantic lead, the male sure. romantic lead. Chico and Grocho have a scene together, always. Uh, so-so songs sung by the romantic leads. The There's always a third act low point. We're following uh, Thalberg's idea of the football game. Right. Which has, you have to have the low point, so then you can have the rousing finish where the team, against odds, Off wins the game. Off the top, though, someone has to abuse Harpo <laughs> to justify everything Harpo that's does. True. That's true. That's right. Yes, yeah. so we have that with the strongman. Exactly. Uh, and then a slapstick ending full of uh, madcap hijinks, which all three of those films follow, Night of the Opera, Day of the Races, and At the Circus, all have a big, crazy ending. Right. Uh, but what I like about all those movies is their crazy endings are good. They're not a tiresome crazy ending, which you can also have with a movie where it just kind of gets mad. But it's so crazy that it, it, you almost, it almost depersonalizes Everyone's the film. running for no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't have any sense of stakes or anything, and it just kind of gets kind of dull. It's very hard to make a good... Like kind of crazy chase mm-hmm. sequence. The success of the black people mm-hmm. sequence in A Day of the Races, of course, led to a new sequence that yeah. also makes us uncomfortable nowadays because we feel like, why is this happening? <laughs> Though, again, it does come down to, you know, is it better to have no representation yes. or questionable representation? And the song itself, it, it's kind of upbeat and it's okay yeah, it's and it's not a bad yeah, yeah. thing, but it's no, no. definitely... 
almost beat for beat uh, what what you get in that one. Where mm-hmm. hey, look, it's uh, someone magical, and uh, yeah, and they yeah. think now. And I remember like when going back to. Um, you know when he was uh, the angel Gabriel, and you're like, the do they really voices. think he's the angel Gabriel? You know, and it's like, what's what's that? It's just so strange. Yeah, it is strange. And this is a little different because they don't they just give him the name Swingali, yeah. which is like a play on Svengali. But everyone knows what they mean. Like, yeah, yeah he is. He's yeah, this. Yeah. But here's what it felt like to me. Now, now I'm looking at both of these together. Like when you do it once, you go like, oh, okay. And again, look, it is what it is. And any <laughs> anything that you have to say against it, you're right. Correct. Here's an, here's another point of view from this guy in Canada. Is at one point these these people who you don't see through the movie. Yeah. Harpo Harpo is alone. Yeah. And you don't see Harpo alone a lot. Yeah. But Harpo's alone, and when they see him, they see him for what he is. Yeah. And they see him as a magical guy. Yeah. And they get it. And he sees them, and no one else sees them. Yeah. But he sees them because mm-hmm. of who he is. Yeah. And they have a relationship. Yeah. And then they just have a lot of crazy fun together. And then when it's done, Harpo's back to this other world, and yeah. he walks between these two these two worlds. Yeah. But they get who he is. Well, that's a nice and way he to He gets look at who it. they are. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And yeah. it's 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 all done. There's there's never a time where anyone's mean to anyone yeah. there. Yeah. That uh, that anyone yeah. is an object of fun because of how they look. Mm-hmm. Or they're uh, they're poor or anything like that. It's just big reactions, which yeah. you could go, well, that seems a little, mm, yeah, you know. But it, you know why it seems a little mm is because you get stuff later on, like Amos and Andy, where it's white people doing black people, and yeah. they're doing those reactions. Yeah, and now we're into that. <laughs> uh, but yeah. everything's an oversized reaction in a Marx sure. Brothers movie. So if 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 people were playing it straight, that would be weird too. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's I took it as just a magic moment where it's just like mm-hmm. no, that's a good way magic to recognizes like magic and then like they that. go and they do the thing. Yeah. yeah, the only thing my only problem with this sequence is that because the budget was cut, it's not quite as full as that one. So you don't get like the jive like the the, the Lindy Hoppers and yes. stuff like that, which is really a part of the joy of that sequence is all the different sort of black talents of that time yeah. being able given the opportunity and just to going perform full on out screen, and it's just screen. Geez, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's that's always great because yeah, you know at that time, there just wasn't a recognized market for black performers. So it was hard to make a movie with black performers in it mm-hmm. because, you know, there's there were lots of people who would never go to see those movies. And so you'd lose audience. And movie studios were afraid. Of it. I mean, it's no different than, you know, not allowing Bruce Lee to be Kung, do the role in Kung Fu and giving it to David Carradine. Right. If you want to, again, yeah, if you want to try and put a positive spin, everyone there is celebrated and all the rich stiffs are made fun of. So at least at least the uh, the the co- the comedy attacks yeah. are at the right uh, are at the right people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing about the film is that Brecker was a big fan of the Marx Brothers. He actually when he was at his age he liked to impersonate the Marx Brothers. He would often dress up as Groucho mm. and perform as like a Groucho character. He and so he brought kind of a fanishness to to the project as well. In fact, uh, we will talk about it later in Go West. There was a day when Groucho was sick and they needed to do publicity pictures. Brecker dressed as Groucho and st- stood in for him for the publicity. <laughs> and no one seemed to notice that there was a 25-year-old kid in the pictures with, oh, with his brothers. So, yeah. Whoa. We got his act like, together. Because I don't know if you noticed in this movie, uh, Groucho is aging uh, and he's now wearing a toupee. Oh, okay. To cover. Because in uh, room service, he went without a toupee and you could see that he's his starting to... His forehead is getting larger. Okay. And uh, so he, in this movie, he's got kind of a... A front wing. I wasn't quite so. sure what was going on, but yeah. all right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And also there's a lot of, you know, dying and stuff like that of sure. the hair and stuff. Because, you know, he was 
in his late 40s. Yeah, but you're going to begrudge a guy dyeing his hair when he's got a grease mustache on. <laughs> I'm not begrudging anything. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Saying, it's like we're I'm already just, in crazy town. I'm just talking so the, reali- the reality of, of, mm-hmm. of the... Uh, of the grease the time, mustache. Of the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, he's a fan. So, you so if you have the sort of borrowed elements from the other Marx Brothers films that are sort of brought into this movie. For sure. So, you have, like, say, the bad scene, which is kind of reminiscent of the password scene from Horse Feathers, a bit of Tootsie Fritzie from A Day of the Races. Sure. Uh, the scene at Professor Adams' the tiny house has a bit of the boardroom or the stateroom scene, I should a say. A little bit, yeah. Having, okay, a, yeah. having a scene with people in a claustrophobic yeah. space. So he's just sort of bringing elements. So when we're doing the film, you know, other ones will probably occur to us where they kind of have remin- the reminiscent of other of other things. I just went like, oh, the seal's back from, uh, you know. <laughs> horse uh, feathers. Yeah, horse feathers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That seal's good. Um so yeah, so let's talk about the film itself if you, right. if you want to. Did uh, you want to you make some general comments before we start talking about well, it? Well, I'm going to say one thing off the top, which sure. was just a small little thing that, was, that annoyed me as a cartoonist, was I liked uh, I liked the illustrations off the top of the Marx Brothers at the circus and yeah. Some, you know, but the but the problem was they had uh, they started with their images, yeah. which is always good to see. Yeah. Then they had one where it looks like they were driving something, but they had the credits over the faces so you couldn't see it. And I'm like, oh, I guess the credits will change and we'll get to see the image. Yeah. And then I was like, nope, it just went to the next one. I was like, oh, wait, you don't get to see this beautiful drawing. That yeah. seems like a big mistake. Mm. And then they have the next drawing, which is just a generic circus drawing. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess we're going from credit thing to credit thing. And then they those credits fade and we keep on that circus image and we come up with more credits. Like, well, no. <laughs> keep Put the Marx Brothers in all the things. Yeah, yeah. Or show me that one. Mm-hmm. It just like was a small little detail of yeah. like, Mm, and it started was, off right. It was weird because room services were so ambitious. Yeah, the movie itself isn't that ambition, but ambitious. But the credit sequence is really good for room service, and then you get this kind of a cheap one for. Uh, I will say one thing though is that I had a one of my favorite Hollywood names in this movie, which is uh, the uh, costumer for the ladies, Dolly Tree. I like. The, I love that. Oh, that's name. a good name. Edith Head, another costumer, yeah. another great name. But and I forgot to mention for room service. My all-time favorite Hollywood name, which is Van Nest Polglaze, who did the uh, production designs for that movie. I love that name. So crazy. Someone who's their own porn name. <laughs> Such a great good, name. Good for good for them. Uh, okay, gener- uh, generically, uh, generally, uh, I I just was really delighted to see them again performing together, and they seem to well, be having they seem to be having fun. Yeah. Here's my one of my biggest problems was you've got a Marx Brothers movie and and Groucho doesn't show up for 15 minutes. Yeah. And that's dumb. Yeah. That's just plain dumb. Uh, like but that's, sh- th- besides the Night of the Opera, which establishes him in the first sequence with Margaret yeah. Dumont, Day of the Races, he's not in it for that about that long as well. That uh, is no good. Um, <laughs> what... Uh, when when he actually showed up in like in the ta- in the taxi, mm-hmm. I wanted just to have a little uh, little remark about just like took you long enough. The movie's almost done, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like uh, for him to come out, but sure. yeah. So I thought that was a bit of a mistake. Like you're starting too mm-hmm. long. I thought with the romantic plot, sure. and I get setup is important, but you lose the tone, mm-hmm. and then you've got to like a, try and get the tone back, and uh, yeah. that's that was problematic to me. Well, my feeling about this movie. And I've had a, I've, you know, for a long time, I've had a negative view of this film. Um, but doing this show and talking with you, of course, you know, I've had to accept the fact that, you know, the Marx Brothers that I love, the crazy madcap Marx Brothers of the thir- er, early 30s, you know, they did have to change with the change of the comedy. The comedy was changing and they had to move with the times. Right. You know, the kind of madcap movies of the early 30s. And we've, 
I've mentioned many times, The Kid from Spain. Yes. And also <laughs> a movie, which is, and a movie which is insane, mm-hmm. like, like Million Dollar Legs. Like that movie is, is so crazy that it actually gives you a headache to watch it after a while. Right. It's like too it, much. It almost feels like we need to do a review of Million Dollar Legs after we're done with this. It's been again mentioned so well, much. And, and I've been chastised many times. So I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, here it comes. I'm going to correct. Wait, wait, we're going to not get a comment this time around. Then. I'm going to correct. Gonna cut back on our feedback. I'm going to correct. Okay. Myself and point are. out. Uh huh. That Harpo Marx mm-hmm. married Susan Fleming during a day of the races. She was the star, the female star of Million Dollar Legs. It was her legs that were a million dollars. I don't know. So it was each uh, $500,000? Yes. Which now, there wasn't a million dollars each. It wasn't $2 million in total. No, no. It was, it was a million dollars. $500,000. $500,000 legs. How much were her arms worth? Her arms were valueless. They're so nothing, like a Venus to Milo situation. Yeah. No, no. She had arms. It's nothing special. Okay. Yeah. She actually... After she married Harpo, she was in a car accident and lost her foot. Oh, no. Got $100,000, though. Okay, that's still not... I'm well, joking. All right, good. Jeez. What a, weird, what a weird joke. Um, do you think that's funny? Yes, I do. I'm laughing right <laughs> and now. And the camel just collapsed. Uh, yeah, I just like that you finally said that, and now this nice person who has been writing to us quite often yeah. is now at home going, yeah. That's right. <laughs> I got through to them. Got, I, got, I, 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 yeah. I got through. Like, I did it. Finally. Okay. I just, you know, I felt bad every time. I was like, oh, I forgot to mention that. I forgot. Because sometimes you're like, I'll remember to mention that. Right. I'm not going to bother writing it down because it's so obvious that I'll remember to mention it during the show and then get talking. Yeah. So my only pacing forgetting. problems were the Marx Brothers being introduced too late in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but once they're, once they're together, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're going and it's fine. Yeah. And I'm going to, we'll get to it proper. But I would say my, oh boy, I'd say my second favorite Marx Brothers song is in this uh, movie. Lydia, yeah. oh Lydia. Yes. Yeah, after Hello, I Must Be Going, mm. uh, then Lydia, uh, then Captain Spaulding, and then we go down the list. My favorite is uh, Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African Explorer. I understand. I, I listen to the theme song of this show. <laughs> so, after we have the credits. Right. With the great name Dolly Tree. <laughs> The film opens with an establishing shot of a large crowd walking along an elaborate pathway mm-hmm. toward into the Wilson Wonder Circus. And I was looking at it going, that, oh, that's a matte painting. That's why it looks that way. But it's still pretty good. It's a good painting. There is a further establishing shot of the inside of the circus tent as horses and riders perform a briefly shown musical ride. So we see them crisscrossing yeah. each other, which is pretty impressive. Now, actually, as someone who knows horses and likes a good musical ride, how'd that uh, work out? For I you? thought it was very good. I thought it was good. very well done. In fact, this movie had really demanding additions for the riders for the movie. Not only did they have to be able to ride horses well, but they also had to be able to perform be- a ballet sequence as well so they really were quite rigorous when they wanted they wanted beautiful women mm-hmm. who could ride horses and also dance ballet now was there anyone any circus folk that were brought in for this yes they did have circus folk as well but the riders themselves were not circus folk they were uh hired for the riding skills not for their okay. circusing skills all they did was ride and so because you know they kind of limited what they wanted to show it in terms of circus performances they didn't want a whole circus cast you know if you can see the film there's not a lot of you know there's not clowns as you pointed out yeah there's not uh there's they're lions but we don't see a lion tamer we just don't see all the kind of cornier elements of, of what you expect to see in a circus they kind of really limited that part of it and i think wisely yeah you know because it's not that's not what the movie's about really no. it's just people about, go to a circus to see it's the upside down yeah. walking yeah. 
That's so, what everyone likes best about a circus, yeah. the upside-down walking. <laughs> so, yeah, actual circus performance reviews. They're from a circus called the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus. It's mm, a good name. Uh, and so what they did was they would shoot during the day, the Marx Brothers, and do, do the principal photography. Then at night, the second unit would film all the circus stuff. So mm. they would film the, the performance riding their horse and stuff like that around in the tent. And because that, you know... Um, Eddie Bazell didn't have to be there for that, and the Marx Brothers didn't have to be there for that. That could all be done by other people, just to get all those shots done quickly. Um, so we now see this movie's resident pill, Jeff Wilson, <laughs> played by Kenny Baker, a man with a very high voice. I think we could all agree. Right. And, this, weird... and the second best Kenny Baker in uh, film. Second best. Well, he actually played R2-D2 later. Is that him? No, it's not. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> He just sounds the same. That was amazing beep, beep, camera beep, tricks. Beep, boop, boop. Okay. Just, he was on the Jack Benny show, actually. He was he was the, the resident Irish tenor before Dennis Day took over. Oh, all right. Uh, and he does have that, you know, hey, Mr. Benny, that kind of thing. And then, hey, Mr. Benny. And then you sing, when Irish eyes are smiling. And then yeah. they talk, hi. What's with that? Why are you a tenor? I guess because your voice. Um, so he's replacing Ellen Jones. I guess Ellen Jones had other better things to do at this point. Um so he's feeding Gibraltar, the, the circus ape, a banana. Sure. Now, Not quite MGM, sure what that uh, gorilla does in uh MGM in had circus. trouble finding a gorilla suit for the movie. It's weird. They had so much trouble finding a gorilla suit. They finally located one owned by this guy. Yeah. Then they had to hire an actor to wear the suit. And the problem with the suit, that it was unventilated. So an actor could perform for about two hours in the suit and then would faint. And that's how it went every day. The actor would wow. perform for about two hours. He'd lose consciousness. Then they'd have to stop filming. Okay. Maybe, so finally, shoot, maybe shoot an hour at a time. So this guy... That'd be my advice. This guy got fed up with it. He took the gorilla suit to the commissary and punched holes in it with an ice pick. Uh-huh. And then he was wearing it, but he wasn't fainting after two hours. So then the owner of the suit started getting suspicious, wondering why his why he was lasting so long. So he went and examined the suit and discovered the holes in it and got outraged and took it away and wouldn't, and wouldn't come back with it. And so then they had to find another suit. So this actor sourced one in San Diego drove down and got it but it was an orangutan costume which was too small for him so he lost the role and another guy had to play gibraltar so if you watch the movie there are scenes where gibraltar is like a kind of gorilla sized gorilla right and then suddenly he's very small and that's because they had two different costumes so by the end where it's the big stunts who's 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 in the suit then i'm not sure is that big gorilla or little gorilla it looks like the big gorilla to me okay for that for those sequences and uh, this is before people knew how gorillas moved, so it's it's yeah. definitely guy it in a gorilla suit. It's not yeah. it's not uh it's it's not at the Andy Circus. It's not <laughs> Kenny Baker's brother Rick Baker mm-hmm. performing as uh because that guy could really wear a monkey suit. He knew how to do it. There you go. Um, Andy Circus is the guy who uh, was King Kong, right? And yeah. was Gollum. But Rick Baker was King Kong before. Uh, okay. Before but my circus. joke was valid, correct? Right. Mine's better. Because that I went I with Andy Circus, the... and I'm using the play on the words of the. But uh, I'm playing on the. So I'm I'm, on the I just actor, gotta ask right? you: Do you think that's funny? Uh, so many camels died in the making of <laughs> making of this thing. You know, it's never. It's ne- you look even into fairly modern times, and not the movie Modern Times, yeah. but you look at something like a Trading Places, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they still hadn't nailed that gorilla suit situation then no, no. well by but any means. And also, if you ever do watch Trading Places, you forget about the gorilla scene. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to say much about the gorilla scene because yeah, right. this is a you're G-rated right. podcast. But you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this movie. No, you don't. 
Nope, you don't. You don't remember that scene. You do not remember that scene. But anyway. But you know what? In a in a comedy, you do you don't want a real monkey. You want a comedy monkey. Right. So a guy in a suit is perfectly fine in a fantasy comedy. Right. It would so, be terrible to have a real gorilla acting in the movie. It would be you would feel scared for the people. Sure. You know, you just want a, a lumbering but wait a second. Thing. Yeah, okay. Well, yes, when you want to have a bunch of shtick at the end. Yeah. But like, it seems like this is a circus that has people walking on the ceiling. Yeah. And then all angry animals, like lions that are furious, <laughs> that shouldn't be that mad at, at anything. Well, they're just tired of all the neon light, keeping them awake at night. I also wondered when I saw the lions, I'm like, is, is one of them the MGM lion? Did any of them audition for the MGM lion role? Are they, are they bitter about that, that mm-hmm. their friend got that, uh, that part? Yeah. Cause you must get lions from one source in LA, I would assume. I would think so. Yeah. So I they know so. each other. They, yeah. they at least know the MGM lion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. But anyway, let's go through the movie. So Jeff is approached by movie love interest, Julie Randall. Right. Played by Florence Rice. I never feel more like uh, like a young uh, boy uh, than when the romance is coming on and these things are just like, yuck. <laughs> That's right. Do they ever, they never kiss, right? I do. They do kiss. Do they kiss? I can't remember if they if they do. I, I don't know if it's like a Bollywood situation where they can sing and they can dance <laughs> and they can do double but entendres, can't. but they just can't kiss. Well, I was thinking that when I was watching her perform... And she's on stage, and she's wearing a, a skirt that goes right down to her ankles. Uh-huh. I was thinking, is this the Hayes office in action? Or is it just an equestrian suit? At that time, would have a long skirt. Ah. I'm not sure. I don't know equestrian suits from the, the late 30s. Okay. But here's a little bit of trivia, and I'm just going to ask our audience this. Mm. How many horses do you think Dave owns? <laughs> Take a guess. In your head, name name a number. Okay, what was the number? Wrong. It was two. He owns two horses. Now, back to this. All right. Uh, <laughs> they have some cute dialogue. The references re- references Jeff and Newport. Okay. And so from that we can we can infer that he has turned his back on his upper crust roots. Yes. To slum in the circus business. That seems to be the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Florence Rice is interesting. One interesting thing to me about her is that she is in a a movie that was also directed by Eddie Bazell, uh called Fast Company, where she plays a character called Garda Sloan, with um, Melvin Douglas as Joel Sloan, and they're rare book dealers. Who get embroiled in a in a murder mystery and solve it? Mm. Um, and what the reason that MGM created the series was, was uh, distributors were angry at how long it was taking for Thin Man movies to come out, so they created another sort of witty. I was going to ask if it was yeah. someone connected with that. So they okay. did three films in the series. There's Fast Company, yeah, Fast and Loose, and then Fast and Furious, right? But each movie has different actors. In oh. It. Yeah, it's that weird. is fast. I've loose. never seen the third one. I've seen the the first and second. The second one has Anne Hussey in it, so it's also very good because she's really she's really great too. But um, yeah, Florence Rice. I really liked her in this movie. Like I, I think she's really good and really good looking and, oh. and and brings some, you know, a little bit to the role. Sure. But uh, yeah, she didn't really have much of a career though. It kind of dried up for her in the forties. But yeah, I think that might be why she ended up getting cast in the film. Is maybe Eddie Bazell recommended her uh, from having directed her in, in Fast Company. Who knows. Julie's act is announced by the MC slash ringmaster, and I mentioned that he who's standing on a nightclub style bandstand at a microphone with chairs beside it. This, I had to mention that when I was writing this out because it just seemed weird to me. That set, it's so odd. It's like he's going to sit down and interview the. So how do you feel about performing? You know. Yeah, you have a funny story about the lion. <laughs> you have a funny story about the lion. <laughs> uh, she performs a quote unquote trick riding act, although okay. she doesn't actually ride in the act. <laughs> yeah. That is quite the trick. She so she 
while singing Step Up and Take a Bow, she makes the horse do some steps around on a small stage. Uh, and I was, I was thoroughly unimpressed. I guess, was there a peep, there were other writers standing around her, kind of re, like, sort of a radiating ring around her, uh, watching. Oh, okay. But they didn't do much either. Doesn't seem like, uh, it people seemed, down front get a good view of that. Yeah, it just seemed very really odd. The next act is Circus Strongman, Goliath. Yeah. Played by our old friend, Nat Pendleton. Last seen as one of the football players in Horse Feathers. And facially, so much like Rip Torn, it really bothered me. Mm, is that right? Yep. Because he was wearing that mustache and yep. the... and did those kind of big reactions yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just figured that uh, you were going to... Like, this is what I thought they were setting up. Yeah. Was because both Harpo and him are wearing the same wig. Right? Like, exactly the same wig. So it's like, oh, big strong guy. Thin guy. Thin yeah. guy. Yeah. At some point in the movie... Harpo's going to have to impersonate the strong guy <laughs> yeah. and going to get a whole bunch of stuff oh, thrown at him. Great. Right, that's what I assumed had to be happening because yeah. from the back they look exactly alike, except mm-hmm. for you know, of course, their uh, you know muscle mass and like there there must be because there's no reason yeah. to put that freakish wig. No, no, you're right. There's no reason, no reason at all because there's not even that's not even in the script or even in the idea in the script. Yeah, because it wasn't intended. It was merely the costume department. Saying we got this, a spare wig? Yeah, we got an extra Harpo wig. What should we do with it? Hey, Nat, your hair is too short. Because mostly he played like gangsters or yeah, dumb yeah. policemen. So he had short hair. And so probably like, we need to make you look more exotic because you've got that weird accent. Uh-huh. And so we're going to give you this crazy wig. Okay. Go with it. All right. Roll let, with it, Nat. Let me just throw... And also, don't forget, you're going to wear a, a leopard print. Great. Let me throw one <laughs> other idea at you then. Since we're going like Goliath. That sounds yeah, fine, but yeah. I don't know why we're using Harpo's wig. Uh, <laughs> listen, I've got a long hair wig. Yeah. Now you're Samson. Yeah. Still works, mm. and you don't look exactly the same. Yeah. It's like if the first time you see Groucho, he's. But you're changing to- this. You're see what you're doing is you want them to change the script to suit the changes in costume. <laughs> That should never have been introduced anyway. Right, but when, yeah, when they, when you first see a guy with a weird wig, yeah. and then the next person you see is Harpo with the exact same weird hair, yeah. you go, oh, this is his brother. They're a team. Yeah, this is his brother. Yeah. Yeah. He's got his brother a job, but he abuses his brother. Sure. You know, and uh, his brother's so, you know, put upon that he can't even talk, and or whatever you're going to do with him, that makes sense. But yeah. yeah, it's like the first time you saw Groucho, there was another guy with a grease paint mustache, yeah. and you go like, Oh, there's a connection. And then there's never a connection. No, no. Yeah. That's really weird. Yeah. I liked no, no, uh, him right. throwing the, uh, the the barbells at Harpo and him sinking in the ground. Yeah. 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 Sets up that he's crazy magic sure. guy. So that's apparently reality and just he's not a clown and this isn't a bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just That's just the yeah. way it is. He actually gets mad. Yeah. Because, yeah, so uh, Goliath enters carrying two large barbells. Uh-huh. And what I was expecting was that... Harpo was just going to pick them up and carry them away. Mm. They're being super light. They're just fake heavy, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't happen. So Absolutely. Well, when you see the guys come out to I like, like that they didn't do that. I like that they didn't do no, that. No, I get that. Yeah. But it's just, and they roll them away. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. So for his act, he's going to catch three large cannonballs. That's the idea of his act. So, and then they're going to be fired at him from the cannon. Harpo mans the cannons. Right. Shoots them in the butt. <laughs> he only fires one. Yeah. Goliath catches it. Everything's great. The next one misfires. Uh-huh. So then Goliath motions him to go to the next cannon. Right. Harpo fires that one, or Punchy. Let's call him by his name in the movie. Sure. Punchy fires that one. Goliath cap- catches that. Then, without anyone knowing it, the fuse that misfires suddenly sparks up. Right. Goliath is turned around to put down the balls and gets shot in the bum. Which, as a kid, if you're watching this movie as a kid, would be the most hilarious thing you'd ever seen in your life. Right. Guy gets hit in bum. Now, by the way, on a safety on a safety issue, Yeah. this is, this is on Goliath. Sure. Like he knows he hired a mute. 
one, and yeah. he just saw that the fuse kind of misfired. Yeah, but it's still a loaded gun still... that he turned his back to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's on you, Goliath. Yeah, I like when with uh, your ripoff wig. I like when they enter. We forgot to mention this. I like when they enter, and it's like the most sexualized weird joke, where his crotch rises up. The the lep the the head. He has that like leper head that. Did not see that, but okay, go ahead. Tell me more. When Harpo goes in, uh-huh. and there's like the cats in a cage, and then his his little leopard head on his costume lifts up and and oh, growl okay, all right, that. okay, it's weird. If you're watching that, you're like, that's weird. Yep. Why would they? Yep. I guess in those days, people just went innocent. Yeah, sure. They don't see what you see, Dave. Shame on your, you, Dave. Your postmodern weirdness. Mm-hmm. You're bringing too much to this, sir. Uh, yes, and in a rage, Goliath throws his barbell at at uh, Punchy, who catches it. And sinks into the ground. Right. How does your bit normally end? Yeah. You just cat- caught the third ball and it's the same thing? Yeah, that's a great circus act. That thing where you do <laughs> the same thing three times in a row with no change. That's great. That's a good build. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Good drama in that circus <laughs> act you just did. We don't need to build, though, because we cut to Antonio slash Tony. Bug me a bit that. That seemed a lazy name. Tony? Yeah, naming the Italian guy Tony. Yeah. It was just, yeah. you know, I get this Antonio. That's fine. But sure. it's just like. Oh, so you've run through all the Italian names, yeah. and we're now we're now on Tony. Well, and normally they they use his last name. That's right. So. That's why it just seems lazy. Yeah. Okay. Tony entering the circus grounds looking for Mister Carter, which is a f- and he's doing a funny bit. And he's in a rush. No time to talk. Yeah. That's, that's what he's saying. Can. Hi to everybody. How yeah. you doing? I yeah. can't listen to you now. You tell me later. Uh, what's going? No more time for you. Just keep going. It's like that's that's good. Yeah, it was a good bit. Yeah, it was good. He's friendly, but you know, yeah. rude. Uh, but uh, and yeah. he's in a rush. We're moving things along. Uh, he finds Mr. Carter, played by James Burke, talking with Jeff Wilson. He has, uh, Carter has lent Jeff $10,000 and now, due to circumstances, he says, needs the 10 grand back in full immediately. Mm. Classic bit. Classic bit. And it makes me think of, of, uh, Jay Cheever loophole. Because there was a guy, and I can't remember his last name now, whose name was Jay Cheever something. And he lent a bunch of money to Universal Studios, to Carl Lemley and Carl Lemley Jr to make Showboat. And before Showboat was completed, he demanded back the loan, which they could not afford to pay. Right. So he took over Universal Studios from them. Showboat was a huge hit. If the loan had been extended, they wouldn't have been able to pull it back, pay it back in full. Yeah. But they couldn't, they couldn't pay it back before the movie came out. And so basically he took over Universal Studios. Um, so I wonder. Is that always the plan? So here's the thing. I wonder if Ben Heck did write the treatment for this movie that is sort of the inside kind of an insider joke that he would ah. put into the film taking g chavers j chevers name putting it with giving that to groucho and having a kind of a semblance of that story in this movie where carter's lent the money to jeff now is demanding it back expecting that jeff can't pay him back and if jeff can't pay him back he forfeits the circus to carter interesting okay so it's kind of a parallel yep. story it yeah. just seems like a bad, basically bad contract signing on everyone's part where it's just like, oh, I can ask for all of it back uh, at any time. And if uh, you don't, I take everything. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a terrible contract to sign for it a loan. Is, but you're so desperate. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I'm going to either... give you a loan for you for this. Uh, you need a loan for your car? It's yeah. great. Okay. I'm going to lend you $5,000 for the car. By the way, at any point I can go, I need that $5,000. And if I don't, I get your car forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good deal for me. <laughs> it's a good deal for no one. Right? But if you're desperate for the money. Well, you're an idiot still. Yeah. That's a, that's no good because someone's going to come and take your car because it just makes more sense to this guy yeah. to just take the car. Sure, sure. I was watching the movie and I was like, man, this Burke guy seems so familiar. And then I realized he was in uh, my favorite Harold Lloyd talkie, The Cat's Paw. Okay. And I was like, oh, that's where he's from, The Cat's yeah. Paw. 
Love that and movie. you woke your wife and went, that's where it was from. That's where I did do that. And she went, I'm trying <laughs> to sleep. I teach children. <laughs> he said, go away, dear. Yeah. Then the dog started barking. It was just a mess. <laughs> the two horses woke up in the next room. Yeah. This is where they sleep. <laughs> I live in a barn. Were you? Do you live in a barn? I do live in a barn. <laughs> Tony has been looking for Mr. Carter to inform him that he needs a month off next year in August. Because in his divorce settlement, he gets his wife's parents for a month. This is a dumb joke, but it's good. good, though. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. Carter walks off in disgust. By the way, why does he need to see him immediately to tell him that? You need to get a vacation next year. (laughs) I don't have no time to talk. That's a good. I got to set up a vacation a a year from now. It's a great bit. Yeah. Tony, knowing that Jeff is in a bind, looks up trouble in his address book, and there he finds the name J. Cheever Loophole, which I like a lot as a as a as a grocery name. I think it's a good name. Tony goes to the uh, to a telegraph office and to save money. Has the clerk, played by longtime character actor Irving Bacon. So I'm like, that guy, once again, a familiar face. Always oh, when Mr. Deeds goes to town, he's in that movie. He's in all, all kinds of movies. Well, there's always a place for Bacon. And, yes, that's right. To save money, he has him send a congratulatory telegram <laughs> uh, to, to J-Tuber loophole. And, uh, Weird telegram rules. Yeah. Basically, it's congratulations. You, you got a job. Yeah. We, we, we charge less for congratulatory telegrams. Why? Actually, you know what? I can I can see why. Yeah. Here's why you would charge less for congratulatory telegrams. Yeah. People would tip more for a congratulatory telegram. Oh, okay. But if you had like one delivering tragic news, you know, and, and you get that delivered like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then the guy couldn't be there with his yeah. hand out going, yeah. eh? Yeah. A little in there. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. You're going to, you're going to get some, you're going to get some dough. So it pays for itself. So let me cut to a rainy night. As the circus prepares to move on to the next town. Julie is in the Depot Cafe reading the newspaper. We get the good old expository device of the newspaper giving us some information. Sure. It tells us that uh, Jeff Wilson has, quote, given up greenbacks for barebacks. Mm-hmm. So it's a horse circus. <laughs> yep. That's what we learn. Sure. That That's no- why you see so many horses for the mm-hmm. rest of the... Uh- we, uh, in the background, nothing but horses. Nothing horses but, everywhere. Yeah, horses all the time. people are riding uh, ostriches later. <laughs> we learn that his aunt, Susanna Dukesbury, uh-huh. Margaret Dumont, has disinherited him for running a circus. How dare he? Jeff instructs Tony to not let anyone onto the train without a badge, because he, he has a lot of money on the train. Jeff joins Julie and tells her that he intends to pay back Carter his $10,000 that night. Julie finally agrees to marry Jeff. They sing Two Blind Loves. They sure do. For about yeah. an hour. Yeah. The only good part about that song is, is that there's time to go to the bathroom. Is that they're they're stalked by the cafe chef or whatever the the server. Yeah. He just kind of like follows them <laughs> through the restaurant. And when I was watching it, I thought he was played by the, the act. There's an actor who I can't remember his name now. Her, Herbert something who was in Hell's a Poppin. No, Hugh Herbert. And he 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 he, he kind of did the thing where he would go, uh, he would like put his fingers together and kind of go woo 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 like that. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that I thought he was like doing a little minor role in the film, but it's not him. It was a different guy okay. named Frank Orth. I kept watching that scene and going like, "Is Groucho behind any papers? Or <laughs> is he hanging around? Are we going to see him?" It's like this is a long time without Groucho. This is what time when I started feeling it. So I don't know where it would have been, but it was written and filmed for the film, and it was cut out of the movie. But it was what we were lacking from the film, which is the opportunity to see Groucho as a lawyer in the movie. Yes. And there was a courtroom sequence oh. that was written, shot, and cut out of the movie for whatever reason that let us see Harper. And it's a pretty good scene. And if you want to perform it, we could. Or I could just read out a, a Sure, pers- let's perform it. Okay. All right. Because, again, this is the thing. Much like him as the horse doctor, 
in uh, Day at the Races, where then later he's around horses and uses none of his horse doctoring knowledge. You know, we start off with like, he's a lawyer, and occasionally they'll refer to the, yeah. him as a lawyer, yeah. but we'll never uh, see him do anything that a lawyer would do. So do you want to be Groucho? Sure. You be Groucho. I'll, I'll play the other characters. All right. A close shot of the judge on his bench. He is rapping with his ga- gavel. We've had too much delay in this trial. Now then, where's the plaintiff's attorney? A wider angle takes in the judge, the court clerk, and the plaintiff. The plaintiff is a very statuesque blonde wearing a veil and revealing an attractive pair of legs. She is seated in the witness chair. The court clerk is rising. Is the attorney for the plaintiff in the court? Attorney J. Cheever Loophole. Attorney Loophole! Mr. Loophole! Pan to jury box. Chin in hand sits lawyer Groucho. He is catnapping. The noise awakens him. He leaps to his feet and whirls on the jury with a dramatic plea. Gentlemen of the jury, I implore you to face the facts. This is a simple case of... Overseen, we hear judge rapping with gavel. Groucho stops, looks toward judge. Angle on front of courtroom. Defendant's attorney jumps up. This is highly irregular. Why is the attorney for the plaintiff sitting with the jury? I'd rather have the state owe me three bucks than a day with the plaintiff. Groucho steps out of the jury box and stalks over to a frightened little man who sits at defendant's table. Groucho points an accusing forefinger at him. I intend to prove that this monster, with his silken words and cotton suit, did willfully, and with malice aforethought, promise that he would marry this little child. Oh, he points to the plaintiff. This delicate flower. Gentlemen, this girl believed that man. She trusted him. Ain't that a woman for you? He runs to attack the jury once more. Gentlemen, to me a woman has always been something to revere. My mother was a woman. Great-granddaughter to Paul Revere. But that's a horse of another story. Suddenly, the defendant's attorney leaps to his feet, waving a few shabby pieces of paper and shouting, Your Honor, the plaintiff's counsel has introduced no evidence other than this affidavit with half the pages missing. Well, affidavit is better than none. He has not succeeded in proving even one of his allegations, and I move that you dismiss the case. How do you like that guy? The first case I've had in nine years, and he wants to dismiss it. Judge Pounding Gavel. Silence! Yeah, pipe down! There's not one scrap of evidence to show that my client here was ever even seen with this woman, and yet she sues him for breach of promise? The judge says. Has the plaintiff any further evidence? Any further evidence? Only my trump card, that's all. If it please the court, I should like to call Detective Nicholas Bludge to the stand. Shot toward court audience. In the second or third row rises a burly man. While off screen we hear the clerk's voice. Detective Nicholas Bludge. Bledge is walking toward stand. Here. Angle in front of courtroom. Groucho struts around triumphantly, then turns to opposing counsel. You want evidence, eh? Bounder! The detective takes a stand, and Groucho goes into action. Mr. Bludge, on the night of November 27th, did you, or did you not, see this little lady with a certain despicable playboy? Well... No evasions, please. Remember, the future happiness of several human lives depend on your testimony here. Now tell the court, tell the jury, tell the whole world, who is that man? You. Me? Medium shot on principles. Overseen comes the hubbub of the courtroom. Grocho scurries over to the woman in the case, quickly lifts her veil. He's amazed to recognize her. Valerie! The judge raps gavel for silence. Your Honor, I move for an adjournment. Reaching the aisle, he walks rapidly toward the door, the camera tracking with him. And I'm going to keep moving. Quarter outside courtroom. As Grocho darts out, slamming the door behind him, he is confronted by a quartet of postal telegraph boys. Grocho is terrified as he mistakes them. The National Guard? Mr. Loophole? Yes, but I've got an alibi. I didn't do it. Postal telegraph message, number 1136. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Come quickly to Lexton, or the circus is through. 
They bow. Signed, Antonio! They hand him a wire. As the truth dawns on Groucho, he brightens. Don't wait for an answer. I'll sing it to him myself. The scene fades out as Groucho heads for the door. So where exactly that scene would have played, probably after the telegraph message, sure. before the cafe sequence would have been good, because yep. it would have got Groucho into the, the, the film faster. But they wanted to concentrate more on the romance of the movie yeah, than great. have the comedy. That's what people want. <laughs> By the way, uh, apologize for my non groucho esque performance, uh, but there we go. It's hard uh, to do Groucho on that. Just on I, I didn't. I wasn't doing. I was not doing an impression of Groucho. No, no, I know. I was just trying to get the rhythms. Yeah. Uh, to some to some degree, and I think uh, we all enjoyed my one note performance. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I did. Oh, very good. As a, as a fellow one noter, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I think that's a pretty good scene, like a pretty I do, fun and sequence. And it establishes what he's doing. Like you need the scene in uh, in Day at the Races where he is with the horse. Yeah. You see, he's a horse doctor. Yeah. You need a visual of oh, he's this guy, yeah. and now we're going to take him out of his comfortable element mm. and put him where he's nervous. And you know, if you want to do a nervous Groucho, maybe yeah. you don't, maybe you shouldn't. But if you're going to do that, <laughs> yeah. show me why. Don't yeah. show like yeah. the first time I see Groucho, he's coming out of a cab and it's rainy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's just whatever. Well, that's the thing. That's what I was going to say before the before we started talking generally, or just in our general discussion, was that you know I have I've had to accept that kind of madcap Bugs Bunny type comedy is no longer in vogue for movies. You know, screwball comedies are in vogue, romantic comedies are in vogue, mm-hmm. and the Marx Brothers kind of had to change their style a little bit and become more human and less like antic spirits or antic beings that have you know aren't afraid of a gangster with a gun. Yeah. And now we have a Groucho who's all too human. He's scared of a strong man. He's scared of, of being revealed to be a horse doctor. And if we if we have to accept that, then I have to accept that element of his character. And so, you know, I have to judge this movie on those criteria. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot about this movie that I like, even though it bothers me that his character has changed in that way. Uh, I have to overlook it and just be judging this film on its what it you know what it's trying to do. And I, you know, and I think his character is pretty good. I think his character is way better once he hooks up with Margaret Dumont later in the film. Yeah, though we, he does, we get like a stepped up. Groucho. But he does start off right. Like he yeah. starts off coming out of the cab. Yeah, guy saying it's like eighteen whatever. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, this doesn't look like a da da da, and, yeah. and he just walks off and he doesn't pay his bill. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, he's a magical character when he comes out. The yeah. guy should be chasing after him, going, "Hey, you!" <laughs> but right. it's like, nope. No. He's just he's Bugs Bunny. He can he can he can sure. do a joke. And he's also a cheap guy. He's yeah. also going to rip you off. Yeah, he's a chiseler. He's yeah. a chiseler. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm all I'm all for I'm all for that. Yeah, you know yeah. they kind of then drop it a little bit. Yeah, like five seconds from that. <laughs> but it was just that it was that little taste of uh, in the coconuts. Yeah, uh, where the ship's uh, pulling away. Are you thinking of ship? Ship? Or are you thinking of Night of the Opera? I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the coconuts where the where the ship is uh, pulling away, and he's like, "Is there time left to pay my hotel bill?" Uh, no, there isn't. Ah, uh, fine by me. And then he turns around because he doesn't want to pay his bills. Are you, where sure. they're on the ship, right? They're on the cruise ship in the coconuts. Night of the Opera. No, uh, aren't they? Aren't they in the cruise? Sh- no, I'm talking about. Uh, in the coconuts, they're the stowaways, correct? No, that's mon- monkey business. Okay, I'm sorry, in monkey business. Okay, he does that <laughs> okay. bit in monkey business. I, I thought it was. Uh, sorry, I thought it was him. Oh, as... sorry, coconuts is him uh, with the. He's a hotel. Hotel. Yeah, I yeah. apologize. Yeah, that's fine. You know why I was thinking? Because monkeys and coconuts go together, and so it's all confusing <laughs> to me. Anyway, no, I like him not paying his bill. Is what I like. Yeah, yeah. I don't like uh, a movie where it starts off with, "Oh, I need money." Ooh, we need money. He needs money. He needs to always get that check. It's yeah. Like, no, yeah. you're a magic guy. You yeah. walk away from the cab <laughs> and you're saying goodbye to a $20 cab bill. There you go. Back when this was a fortune. And the exactly. guy's like, what am I going to do? He's a crazy nut. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he arrives in a taxi, chisels the driver out of his fare. Yeah. And then he approaches Tony 
in by the train. It's pouring rain out, as we said. It's a rainy night. Uh, they greet each other happily, so we know that they're old friends. Yes. But when Loophole tries to board the train, he's roughly pulled back by Tony because he doesn't have a badge. <laughs> and constantly put into the in the water. Into the water. Just, his feet get more and more soaked. And it's so uncomfortable yeah. and cold. And do you think maybe it, that part of the sequence is concentrating too much on that and the discomfort of it? It could be. Yeah. I, like, I, I enjoy the sequence. I enjoy Chico's performance. Yeah. Like, I like that he's friend and foe because yeah. he you know he has to be he's a circus employee but he's also his friend so he wants to he feels sorry for him but he can't let him on the train you know and yeah so I, even though he called for him and yeah. he's the reason he's here that's right and, yeah. and this is all his fault and he should have had a badge for him <laughs> that's right so tony the friend is sympathetic to loophole's plight but tony the circus employee is having none of it and keeps throwing him out manhandling yeah yeah so tony has a brilliant idea that he should go talk to jeff and get a badge from him where's jeff he's on the train so I have to, you know, it's just this, you know. Doesn't, again, these all seem like problems that uh, you could solve easily if you just so well, why don't you go get Jeff, get a badge, <laughs> bring it to me, and we'll be fine. But of course, if Abba and Costello really settled down and just yeah. went, oh, you mean the name of the person is who? I understand. That's right. Well, that's then right. that's not how comedy works. It's true. And that's also in this sequence is one of my favorite lines in the film, which is when he's, uh, Groucho says, or Lupo says, you know, if you hadn't sent for me, I'd probably be, probably be at home in a warm bedroom, <laughs> in a comfortable bed with a hot toddy. And, and Chico says, huh? That's a drink. That's a too bad. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, there's some, there's some good joke. little risky yeah. bits yeah. to the point where they actually comment on it later in a way that we'll, we'll mention. <laughs> yeah. Punchy arrives by taxi cab. Yes. He gets out of the, gets out of the cab with a seal. Good, good seal work, man. Yeah, yeah. That seal, I'm, I hope it was treated all right. But my gosh, that seal does some good reactions and, and good pacing. And, and also great with a it. great name for the seal as well. What was the seal's name? Celia. <laughs> nice. Tony. They show their badges. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what I like is that he, the seal, walks towards the train while Punchy holds his umbrella over the seal. Yes. The entire time as they walk towards the train. Tony demands to see a badge. Punchy has a whole coat full of badges. None for loophole. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that would be a thing. Even the seal has a badge on, on its tail. Yeah, very cute. Yeah. Finally, Tony has the bright idea to give loophole his badge. So, when, But when loophole tries to board the train, Tony throws him off because the badge is out of date. <laughs> Back out into the water. And I was reading that some of the punch of the scene, as written by Brecker, was taken out during editing. Because he had a thing where, in the original script, after to- each time after tossing Groucho off the train, Chico would intone, bless you, good luck, good health, and I think you caught a cold. And it, every time he'd say it, he would step it up a little bit until the last one, I think you got to mo- pneumonia. And so he keeps saying that. So it had a bit of the hard-boiled eggs yeah. element of the, of the stateroom sequence. Or the, yeah, stateroom sequence from... And, uh, and then in the end... The train, he's, he's on the train, the train is pulling away and he says, bless you, good luck, good health, and goodbye. And then the train leaves with, with Chico on it. And Groucho's standing there in the rain, watching the train depart. But then as, as the final car goes by, it's the observation car, and Harpo, as with a fishing rod, grabs Loophole and pulls him onto the train. Oh. And that's how he gets onto the train. But the sequence ends without ever answering how he gets on the train. Yeah. Because it actually, we just cut. And then suddenly in the movie, he's on the train, but they never explain why. It's kind of a bit of a plot hole. Yeah. But there was a sequence that was written that was either decided was too weird, like too surreal, or too expensive to, to do of having to do the effect of, you know, a fishing rod fishing Groucho onto the train. Which would have been pretty great, though, I think. It would have mm-hmm. been a great, great scene. Interesting thing to me about the beginning of this movie is really music heavy. 
Yeah. Like a lot of songs and then nothing after that, like a desert of songs until they do like a reprise of... Though to be fair, say you're locked down to a certain amount of songs. Like for whatever reason you need the songs where you're going to sell the music later or you've got reasons to do the songs. You don't want to song up your your ending because it's really going to kill the comedy and yeah, the pacing. Yeah, I guess that's true. So you just front load front when load people still your... have patience. <laughs> I guess that's and true. And then... So, yeah. Yeah, so, and then make it nuts and sure, sure. free the gorilla later. So we've already had Step Up and Take a Bow. Mm-hmm. We've had Two Blind Loves. Sure, we have. Uh, so now we have a solo spot for Chico. Mm-hmm. He does his piano. Uh, he does beer barrel polka. Yeah. Which... Seemed weird to me, but actually it was a big hit song at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, Glenn Miller had done it. A bunch of different band leaders had done this song. It was, a, it was kind of popular. Being surrounded by pretty girls. They're Even all enjoying it. It was an old song, but it had, I think it had been freshened up with new lyrics. Mm. And so it was like kind of reintroduced into the hit parade. Uh, always a treat seeing Chico play. Yes. And I always like to watch people watch him. So that's very yeah. nice too. We get some, some, uh, lovely lasses watching him, uh, play. And, Next, we see Harpo playing checkers. Yeah, with, with the his, seal. With his helpful seal friend. Once again, Celia. he's magic. He can talk to animals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't know who it is, but one of them isn't much help. <laughs> because he loses terribly in a, in a pretty obvious move that involves him getting jumped over about seven times. Uh, time to move the plot along. Peerless Pauline, uh, one of the circus performers, played by Eve Arden, who I like a lot. I don't... I think she's, you know, she's obviously the villain in this movie, so she plays kind of a snide character in this film. But... Uh, She's great as uh, Armis Brooks, the radio show. I always liked her in that. Oh, okay. Um, and people might know her for a movie I don't like very much, but she played the principal in the, both Grease films, Grease 1, or Grease and Grease 2. Oh, all right. She was the school principal. But uh, I always will like her from Armis Brooks. Pauline warns Carter that if Jeff manages to pay him off, he'll be through. He'll be through. You have to say that with a nasal sure. thing. Carter sends two circus performers, Professor Adam, the circus midget. Yeah. And Goliath. Now that's why it's comedy, because one's small and one's big. Get it, but, everyone? And by the way, we're using that term because that term was used then, and that's what's said in the, in I the guess. thing. Is that right? Yeah. Tony and Punchy visit Loophole in his cabin. Uh, Loophole's presence goes unexplained, but we do know that he was soaked through because he is now wearing a magician's costume. What a, while great, his clothes what a great idea. It is a great idea. It, we have like three really good gags oh, from it. Yeah, just pulling the rabbit out real fast. Yeah. Just putting it down. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah, then later you get the birds and later the, bird, the, the and handkerchiefs. The, the handkerchiefs, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you've forgotten by that point with the handkerchiefs. Yeah. That it's just like, oh, of course it's a magician's outfit. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> and there's one more. When he's talking to Julie on the uh, observation card deck. And he goes, goes to give her the flower from his lapel. It blooms into a bunch of flowers, which is a really nice little effect. <laughs> nice. And he's surprised by it, too. And it's a really nice little scene. Loophole mistakes Punchy for Jeff. After Punchy finds a dove in Loophole's coat pocket, they go in search of Jeff. Tony introduces Loophole to the other circus workers. Loophole continues the musical pile-on by singing Lydia. Right. Oh, my gosh. Lady, okay. And great. let me once again say, that's such a great song. It is a great song. Yeah. When your muscles start relax, When your muscles start relaxing, yeah. up the hill. Comes Andrew Jackson. Yes, it's great. that's my favorite line yeah. of any of any Marx Brothers. <laughs> you know, there's again, there's other songs uh, that yeah, yeah. I like better, yeah. but that just is. Oh, it's really good. So good. And apparently, there was a line that was cut out of the song uh, that was, "When she stands, the world is littler. When she sits, she sits on Hitler." Very good. Which was uh, which was a nice little line. Uh, something like that. I might be paraphrasing it slightly wrong, but uh, it's left just out of such it. A, I guess they didn't want to offend Hitler. Such a such a such a uh, a bunch of clever. Clever, yeah. clever things that just keep building and get and, and, and keeps flirting with like just a little bit dirty. Is it, is it going to get too dirty? No, it's not. 
and we're back and here we go and it just ends so well yeah it is it's a nice uh... as he went and married lydia (laughs) we now cut to gibraltar's car where jeff stores his earnings because that's where you keep your your money in a in a gorilla's cage he's counting out his money when goliath sneaks up from behind and saps him on the back of the head and he and professor adam rob now does he hit him with a blackjack yeah Okay, this was I, I sort of remember that, and 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 at the time went, why? He's a strong man. Yeah, like that's yeah. the kind of thing that a regular guy does. Mm-hmm. Strong man, fist, bonk, yeah, and you're out. Maybe he does. I mean, don't no, because Harpo picks that. up the blackjack later on. Okay, and is, uh, and is is using it to to, that's right. to, to whack uh, Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is that's like right. no, no, strong. He's strong man. Yeah, he's a strong man. Yeah, but dunk, <laughs> you, you know. You're Andre the Giant and the Princess Bride. You don't need a weapon in your hand when we've just seen that you can lift 3,000 pounds over your head. Tony is laying unconscious when he is discovered by... Sorry, not Tony. Jeff is laying unconscious when he is discovered by Tony Loophole and Punchy. They revive him and he is introduced to Loophole. As Jeff recovers, he realizes that the $10,000 has been stolen. Loophole leaves with Jeff so he can recover from the attack. This is when we get the kind of mild-mannered loophole where he's kind of like don't worry about the money you'll you know you feel better in the morning and da 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 you know a lot of yeah that's weird sort of i'll, I'll be your nursemaid <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's weird when you've got to have him yeah helping helping a person out yeah, in that way yeah it's like where does that fall yes. in this character of the, the further emasculation of of Groucho. right it's his character is his his persona becomes less and less potent like you feel like he's a con yeah. man yeah uh, you know, it's, in the past, Chico's been a con man, but yeah. he's not a con man here. No, and Harpo's not a con man. No, uh, it feels like it feels like Groucho has absorbed two of the elements of uh the other characters. Like yeah. now, Groucho is the con man. Yeah, and he's also the guy who chases the ladies. Mm. Because mm-hmm. Harpo doesn't do that anymore. Harpo is now, yeah. Yeah. you know, has no sexuality at all. He's yeah. just, you know, it's, it's there looking goofy <laughs> and would never chase a girl. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like mm, it's I don't know. But yeah, here in this one, he's just being nurturing, which I guess you've got to show they're nice to the, the good yeah. guy. So yeah. we're all on board. Yeah. And you've got yeah, they're uh, the three fairies that help Sleeping Beauty get through it. <laughs> <laughs> Tony decides that he and Punchy should try to redestruct the crime. <laughs> Punchy has been in a police station, we learn. He knows uh, he has a wanted poster of himself, a 50 cent reward for as a jaywalker. Jaywalker. Which I love that. So, I know, and like really photos. sassy photos. Yeah. <laughs> He's so. biting his fist in the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's so good, yeah. It's uh, the great great pictures. Um, so they recreate the uh, the crime. Yes. So he and Tony attempt to reenact the crime. Good, good bets. But only seems to involve Tony getting a blackjack to the head <laughs> yeah. each time, and also that he's indestructible. Kind of like, and it's kind of a return to monkey business, where he could get punched over and over again and have no yeah. physical lasting damage. You know? Yeah, even when a gorilla hits him on the head. Yeah, except when a gorilla hits him. Yeah. By the way, that also, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, there's yeah. probably going to be a thing later on where the gorilla. Because the gorilla saw this happen as well. Sure. Gorilla knows. Yeah, he knows who did it. Who attacked him, and yeah. it was the strong man. Oh, gorilla versus the strong man. Yeah. We're going to see a little scene about that. Yeah. No, we're not going to see that. Okay, we're not doing that. No, no. But the gorilla knows who really is to blame. That's what we learn. <laughs> this gorilla is smarter than you think. Yep. He figured it out. We then cut to loophole <laughs> getting Jeff into bed so he can rest. He attempts to break, which is what you do, by the way, if you have a concussion. Yes, go right to sleep. Go right to sleep. <laughs> nice deep sleep. That's what you want. Immediately get into bed. Don't go see a doctor. No, deep sleep. Sleep it off. Do not. Yeah, you just had your heads cracked open by a blackjack. Yeah, take let's, a nap. Let's be fair. He's a lawyer. Lupo, Lupo's. <laughs> Lupo, uh, he's also a horse doctor, so he doesn't know. Yeah, he doesn't know uh, human med- medical problems. He attempts to brighten things up 
for Jeff by insisting that he can easily solve the case. That's what lawyers do. Yeah, they're also <laughs> private detectives. Crimes. Yes, that's right. After Lupo <laughs> leaves the scene, after I said after Lupo leaves, the scene should end right there. We don't need any more. Yeah. Don't you think? But by no. the way, th- like the angle there is, you know, because I understand the criminal mind. Yeah. You know, he he deals with criminals. Sure. He's a lawyer. Yeah. He's a con guy. Yeah. I know my way around this. Don't worry about it. We'll figure that. out. But no, it's just I'm going to solve the mystery because now I'm a detective. Yeah. 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 All right. Sure. Fine. That's what lawyers do. Yep. How could they solve a case if they're? How can they? Yeah, win a case for you if they haven't solved that thing we established that I am at the beginning. We'll never actually. I'll mention it throughout, and people will react to it. Mm. But I will never do anything like that thing that I'm that we know I do off the top. I guess that was already a common cliche of film: the idea that the lawyer has to solve your case in order to prove that you're innocent. I guess so. Sure. Yeah, they got to matlock it. Yeah, yeah. So, like I say, the scene should end there when Lupo leaves, but it doesn't. We have more Julie Jeff. Yep, sure do. Which is again because people need more washing breaks back then. <laughs> Time to go get some more popcorn. We learned that Jeff is worried about losing the ten thousand dollars. Without it, he'll lose everything. Right. He'll just have to go back home and be rich. We then cut. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. How far is he going to fall down a hole? That's right. Yes. Right. Yeah. How With... how mean is his aunt? Really? Yeah. We then cut to loophole in his room. Tony enters and examines his head. Tony suspects Carter of being behind the robbery but also knows that Carter is too smart to commit himself and had Goliath do the job. It's good that he realizes that because the gorilla is already onto it. (laughs) After briefly being distracted by peerless Pauline, Lupole confronts Goliath, but he is intimidated by the circus strongman. Lupole, in his desperate fear, and I just put in brackets, oh, for the good old days of the Marx Brothers, he has Tony apologize to Goliath, which Tony uses opportunity to to accuse Goliath of attacking Jeff and taking the money, but then they hightail it out of the room. And scurry back to to uh, Loophole's room. They rejoin Punchy there, uh, where they agree that they need to find a new suspect since the old suspect is too scary. Loophole <laughs> decides that he's going to quit and leaves the berth with his meager possessions. He goes out to the observation car where he's found by Julie. She asks him for news and explains how important it is for Jeff and for herself that they find the $10,000. Loophole can't resist her story and vows to help them, and that's when he pulls out the flower for her and it turns into a bouquet, which is a nice little sequence. Meanwhile, Punchy and Tony are trying to find a clue. Punchy pulls out a cigar he found at the scene of the robbery, but in a kind of a play on the charade sequence from A Day at the Races, it's not an exact parallel to the the charade sequence, but it kind of falls into it where he's trying to tell Tony what it is, and Tony keeps misunderstanding him, but doesn't want to understand him. Is this, by the way, is this the dumbest that Chico's ever been? Like, I think he's consistently an out-and-out idiot through this whole thing yeah. where he never gets it right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. He's not He's not the sort of clever tootsie-fruitsy con man yeah, yeah, no. pulling one over by any means. Yeah. He's not playing dumb. Yeah. He's just straight dumb <laughs> through this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He is. I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So Lupo returns in time to see Tony. Oh, yeah. To make him understand what it is, he knocks out Tony. Mm-hmm. Like, with a with a blackjack again, Tony actually is knocked out this time. I guess after the seventh blow to your head, you actually are more susceptible yeah, to sometimes the charm. Yeah, sometimes the charm. Uh, Lupo returns in time to see Tony awaken to the realization that the cigar is a clue. Yeah, Lupo refuses to believe that the cigar might belong to Goliath, but is very easily convinced that the cigar might belong to Professor Adam, the yep. circus midget. A small midget, he asks. Uh, naturally, happy to push that guy around. Yeah. Naturally, Professor Adam. As I said before, played by Jerry Marenghi, who appeared in Wizard of Oz, was one of the Lollipop Guild. 
Oh, yeah. okay. You know what? That uh, Makes that sense. is where that voice sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually, he would later act in Lidsville, the uh, Croft show. Oh, would he? The Croft Brothers show, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, the opening of that show terrified me as a child. <laughs> it was my first recurring nightmare. Good good job, show. <laughs> Thanks, By the way, Jerry the Mangy. idea of the Lollipop Guild. Yeah. Pretty funny. It's great. We're all we're all used to it now. Yeah. But just that, like, yeah, yeah. These are just tough union guys that come <laughs> up and just start singing a song yeah. about being part of the Lollipop Guild. Yeah. It's pretty good. That's great. All right. You're right. Uh, as is the was it the the style of the time was for most small for little people. Yep. Of that time period, uh, would have a small house constructed for them in in a railway carriage with for them to live in. Sure. Because it would have been too big for him to sleep in an actual berth on a train. Yeah, it's way it's way easier to rebuild a room re- and make yeah, it small. Yeah, every time. And have like a small light hanging from yep. it. The whole thing. Yeah. Uh, Just repurpose a dollhouse. So he's living in this uh, he's living in this tiny house. Loophole, Tony and Punchy, uh, come to it. They attempt to devise a plan of attack. Right. But basically, Tony is too impatient and probably too dumb. He's just too dumb. Yeah, he can just he just understands the last thing he heard. I like when he says, "I'll say nothing," and Lupo says, "I know." Also, don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I don't. Don't talk. Uh, uh, Lupo, his plan is to get a cigar from Professor Adam that will match the cigar they found at the scene, and that way they'll have circumstantial evidence, but some kind of proof that he was involved in the crime. So they go into the. They invite themselves into his little house. He pretends that he has all out of cigars and asks Professor Adam for one. Tony, though, although perfectly aware of the plan, he's in on the plan, happily produces one of his own for Loophole. A frustrated Loophole ditches the cigar and attempts a ruse again, but is foiled again by Tony producing one of his own from his coat. <laughs> Loophole's comment that three on a match is bad luck is a real superstition. That's right. But it's also a little bit of an in-joke because it could be referencing... The producer, Mervyn Leroy's film, 1932 film for Warner Brothers, Three and a Match. Okay. Which starred Betty Davis. Though the joke he uses is Three and a Midget. I know, but I'm just yeah. saying it's a... Yeah. So it's a bit of a all around. Uh, after many cigars and much intimidation of <laughs> Professor Adam... And, oh, I also like the fact that um, Punchy lights um, Lupo's cigar with a giant box of matches. So we get that yeah. We get that kind of comparison between what Professor Adam's little tiny house and this giant box of, like the of fireplace, novelty matches. Yeah, yeah fireplace fire, matches. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I particularly love when he, out of out of shot, lights it with his foot. <laughs> this is so great. And then yep. he cuts back and he's sort of hopping towards him. Yeah, they there. got the two beats going, which is uh, trying to trying to get a cigar yeah. and, uh, and, and, and being thwarted by Chico at every yeah, stop. Yeah, and yeah. then also just dealing with the sheer size and just the compression of the room yeah, and then occasionally yeah. like, you know, busting and then he things keep, up. Yeah, he keeps, he keeps uh, hiding everything in the light Lamp, hem, yeah. hanging from the ceiling. And I also love... Tony's sheer joy that he's found another cigar. Yes. Like it never, it never dawns on him. Like he's just like, oh, you're in luck. Yeah, I found I'm out one of more. Them. No, wait. <laughs> I find another one. Yeah, it's, it's just great. The compression. Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Really good stuff. I think it's, yeah. And, and then, also, again, uh, you know, uh, the rea- the reactions to the Mark, Marx brothers of, you know, hey, what's the big idea? I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, now we're all friends again. That's yeah, good. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. I'll see you guys later on. Wait a minute, yes, I'm going to sue you guys. I'm like, all right, we're all good here. We're all good here. I ought to call the... Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, so as a scene, in the, near the end of the scene, uh, obviously Harpo develops some sort of mysterious allergy <laughs> and sneezes, which was made of... Uh, it was kind of... There was some publicity made of... Like the publicity department got in at this time. Harpo Speaks. Because mm. he sneezes, so he says "achoo," so you actually oh, get to hear okay. Harpo speak. 
Not that he really speaks. Is this a play on Garbo Speaks? <laughs> no, that was a lot, a okay. lot earlier. All right. We already know that Harpo spoke for the first time on the screen when he sang in the barrel in Monkey Business. But okay. We'll, All right. We'll, we'll, get them th- we'll give them okay. this. And really, he had no interest in... I mean, it was a publicity department doing this. Harpo had no interest in speaking in the film. Like That was not his character. His character, he took pains to not speak in public as, as himself, like as Harpo. Yeah. He did not speak in public. Grouch, or like, you know, Arthur Marks obviously spoke to people outside of it. But when he was Harpo, he did not speak. Yeah, you got the wig on. Yeah. Keep mum. That's uh, the thing with uh, Teller from Penn and Teller. Never speak on stage, but then off stage, he actually talks more than... Uh, is that right? Penn Gillette, yeah. Yeah, well, he doesn't get enough, he doesn't get a chance to talk See him in like uh, that, that movie did the Vermeer... What was it? Uh, oh, yes. Um, someone's Vermeer. Yeah, Tim's Vermeer. Tim's Vermeer, that's right. Uh, yeah. And yeah, he's yapping through the whole thing mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. more than... Uh, than uh, Gillette. Well, Gillette's probably like, well, this is his chance to talk. I don't want to take it away from yep. him. I always talk, so I'll be quiet. So on the second, so then he sneezes and all the furniture flies around yeah. the room, which is great. Yeah. I love when he's playing the piano, which is on its side. Yep. That's really great. And then on the second sneeze, the scene ends abruptly. So there, there was probably more to that sequence, but for whatever reason, they just decided to cut it there. Now, again, uh, I'm, I'm writing stuff in the future that, you know, but yeah. it feels like you've laid some pipe and you should pay off this pipe. Yeah. So the we've 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 gone to the little person's place and everything is scaled. Yeah. What we should do now, you're gonna go to uh, later on Goliath's place. Mm-hmm. Everything's gonna be so heavy you can't move a thing because he's the strong man. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Sleeping on a steel bed. Yeah. Like everything, like the it's just a brick for a pillow. He's just whatever it is. It's super heavy. Everything is too heavy oh. to move. You can't move a mug of his. It's too you know because I wouldn't want to lose the feathers in that sequence though. So. Mm. I do really like that part of it. Fair so, enough. Yeah. But it just seems like, yeah. now we're going to go and see what the strong man lives like. Yeah, oh, yeah. a normal room. <laughs> Is it? Doesn't seem to what you set up before. The other guy. Okay, fine. We then cut to a sign telling us that Peerless Pauline walks upside down. Another cut takes us inside the circus tent. We have a long shot of Pauline walking upside down on a platform with the aid of suction cups in her shoes. And as I said, the actual walking in the sequence was performed by Janet May, the originator of this act. Wow. I would like to just find out what the technology behind this is. Like, I know you can, you've got the suction cups. That yeah. You can climb up glass. Yeah. I've seen that, mm-hmm. but I don't know how the, what the physics would be like for being upside down. Yeah. I see. She must have performed on a glass structure. Yeah. It would have to be. Yeah. And the uh, smoothest thing possible. Yeah. 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 yeah it's scary because, uh, and it looks quite slow. I don't and know. And again, we don't do it yeah. now, probably for a reason. Yeah. Perhaps. Or just, or just that it's not that exciting, you know, because nowadays when you go to a circus, they've, do not perform without nets underneath the performers. Mm-hmm. So there was a time when people performed without, did, you know, amazingly dangerous acts yeah. without a net. Well, when I went, to, and she's performing that sequence without a net. Yeah, yeah. When I I went to uh, the Shriner Circus when I was like, uh, I must have been ten. Yeah, because I was still in Montreal. Kay. And yeah, we watched the tightrope walker, and there was no net. Yeah, and yeah, if uh, they fell, that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nope, because yeah, yeah, if, yeah. Uh, if they have the net, what's the thing? Nowadays, they very rarely do that without without a net. And I think the act would then just be kind of unexciting. Because when you're watching it live with her that high up, unprotected, all, all it's holding there is suction cups. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Even though it's slow, it's exciting because of the risk to it. But if you take away the risk factor, it's just a slow act of someone walking across glass with suction cups. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean nowadays you, you, you see it's, uh, hey, we're having <clears throat> circus kids camp. What are they doing? Trapeze work. Ah, that's great. Okay. 
Um, it's still exciting and good for trapeze artists. I'm sorry. Don't uh, <laughs> put down trapeze artists. Yes. So we know that Loophole is excited to go and interview her. Sure. Because he is a woman chaser in this movie. Yep. So he goes into the circus tent where she's, and as she's coming down from the ceiling, she lands on his shoulders. Pretty sexy. And we get a little bit of fun there where she's angry at him and wants him to let her down. And he finally does, but he's very pleased that she's on his shoulders. Then we go inside Pauline's dressing room. Carter is in there counting out the $10,000. The $10,000 appears a lot in this movie. It's always talked about, always Mm -hmm. mentioned, and no one who's watching the movie cares anything about it. And uh, a lot of people count it. A lot of people do count it. Even a gorilla counts it. Yep. Uh, And Pauline is still walking on the ceiling in in this bit, or in this uh, brief scene, uh, because she needs to break in her new shoes. She almost fell outside, she says, during the act, so she needs to break them in. Uh, Carter hides a 10 grand inside Pauline's suitcase, just as Groucho arrives outside her dressing room. Carter exits out the back way as Pauline invites Loophole in. He searches her room while they talk, eventually discovering the wallet in her suitcase. He pockets it and attempts to leave, but she knows that he's found it, so she then becomes very interested in him and uh, turns on the charm and pretty much acts like an octopus, as he points out, and is able to retrieve the wallet. It's uh, again. It's the interesting thing with Groucho of like he's the heavy flirter, heavy flirter. But once the woman is like uh, interested in him, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want care this, for this. Yeah, this what's, right. what's your problem? Yeah, I don't like yeah. this at all. Uh, she hides the wallet down the front of her costume, and Loophole is left <laughs> with the tricky task of getting the wallet out, or as he says, without offending the Hayes office. Yep, which was famous, famous at the time as the basically the censorship bureau of because uh, they were playing Hollywood. pretty hard around that. It's like, <laughs> what are you going to do? And it's it's yeah. nice he actually just calls that straight out. Yeah, and apparently uh, according to Groucho, that got the biggest laugh. Oh, of, it's a great movie. joke. It's a great joke, and I think and it was also daring to mention to yeah. mention your oppressors is always very <laughs> yeah. daring. So it got a big laugh from the audience. It's also they knew. you know it's paying off what the audience is thinking. I'm just sure. like, well, he can't reach down her top. Yeah, yeah. What can he do? And That's then right. yeah, just comments. Look. You know the rules. I know the rules. This isn't 1932. He can't reach down her top. That's right. We got to figure this out. Yeah. He tries to get her to walk on the ceiling, but she insists that he join her. Up in the air, the wallet falls out of her. I said bodice. after he changes for quite it. a while, which is a nice yeah, that change. was good. Yeah, that change thing was good, and how he's dressed is also good. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the long underwear with the long, socks attached. Long underwear with the socks attached is uh, is uh, yes. very nice. Um. So up in the other wall, it falls out of her bodice, or however you want to call it, or the costume she's wearing. Sure. Bodice. Uh, but she quickly descends and leaves with the wallet. Loophole, however, is trapped on the ceiling until Punchy arrives. He quickly unties Loophole's shoes, and Loophole quickly falls back to earth. A little bit too much of the help, help, help yeah, panicking. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't didn't like that very much, because it's not, it's not Groucho. No, there's a lot it's of jokes you can do about being upside down. In fact, I don't even like the way he says help. I feel like he's not sure how to say those lines, so he's just kind of like, kind of yelping them out. Help, help. Yeah. But it's, eh. it's not, uh, it's not in character. Eh. So, I know you're, everyone's asking right now, what's happening with Jeff and Julie? Yeah. Well, that's what, why I'm watching the movie. What, what are they doing? Well, <laughs> someone should edit down all these Marx Brothers movies, <laughs> just the love scenes. Oh, yes. And just like, you know what? Not going to have those uh, jerks. Cluttering yeah. up the movie. Yeah, yeah. You like the romance? Sure, this is for you. Just just that. This is for you. This, these movies are almost like punishment for ladies for liking ro- romance. Mm. It's like they're saying, you like romance? Well, this is what you get. It does feel like fellas going, uh, guys, I know what ladies like. Yeah. We're yeah. going to we're gonna give them what they like, and then we can all have some fun. Yeah. We're going to yeah. do that. And they're like, here, huh? Yeah. That's, what we, that's how it goes, right? 
You've never read a romance novel in your life. <laughs> Sorry. You don't know how it I just assumed it was that. You don't know how it works. Yeah, this is not appealing to the detective fans. It's not appealing to the romance fans, but yeah. it does break it up. So it helps the pacing. Yes. It's the policeman of the film. Break it up. Break it up. That's Jeff, right. Jeff comes into Julie's dressing room with a telegram for Julie. And we learn that uh, there's a rival circus that wants to hire her. <laughs> and Jeff insists that she take the job because pretty soon the circus won't be his. And she'll need a job. And he doesn't want to end. Yeah, we got to move all this uh, circus equipment to the Chrysler building with the knee, <laughs> with the Art Deco style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so hard. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff to transfer. All the glass. <laughs> Takes us twice as long to move. Also, by circus. the way, the gorilla is just a killing machine. I don't even know why we have him. He's not a killing machine. <laughs> that was just a bomb waiting to go off. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> so she refuses to leave. But he insists because he doesn't want to drag her down. He's just so, so, uh, he's so much, um... You know what he is? Spoiled rich boy. Mm. He wants things his own way. Yes. Doesn't want anyone to make decisions, uh, he doesn't make. Back to interesting things. Loophole, <laughs> Tony and Punchy, this is the low point in the film. This is the park bench sequence of the yeah, movie. Absolutely. Uh, Loophole, Tony and Punchy are sitting by the monkey cage, trying to decide on their next step. But what I like about this sequence is, yes, it's the boring low point of the film, but we get some nice monkey action yeah. where the monkey's copying the monkey's, their pacing. Uh, aping Groucho. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Like uh, to the point where I like the monkey aping Groucho. Now I'm like, oh, I wish they had the other. Then more, could do yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Of uh, a little Harpo now, and let's yeah. see a little of this. Yeah. But, or at know. least like kind of pacing for it with them and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, like three monkeys pacing or whatever. It would be nice, actually. Yeah, sorry. Now I'm building onto it to a point where something happens later, and like uh, one of the monkeys just replaces one of them, and they don't notice for a certain period of time. <laughs> when Lupo learns that Jeff's aunt is a wealthy widow. He decides that he should go to her and see if she will help Jeff and him. And then he says one of my favorite lines in the film. He shakes the monkey's paw and says, goodbye, Mr. Chimps. (laughs) Which is a great (laughs) line. Yes. It's a great line. Yes. And I was also so happy to go like, wow, there's some kind of rich dowager that's got oh, oh it's oh, oh that's we, great yeah we saw her already we saw her in the papers so we yeah yeah it. but it's still it's yeah. just you forget yeah I'm like right. oh we're gonna get some demont yes all right let's see some prime are we gonna DeMont. get are we gonna get the full demont yes we get the full demont <laughs> everyone departs except for punchy when a lion scares one of the circus employees he tames the cat with the dulcet tones of a muted well, trombone. Well, there's all three. There's all three of them are freaking out. There's three lions. Three lions are yeah. going 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 crazy there. Yeah, like uh, I don't know what you have to do to make lions growl like that, but those lions were mad. I mean, uh, I know they're trained lions. It's fine, but yeah. they uh, they did good uh, lion business there. Uh, some children come out of hiding and watch Punchy incredulous credulously. Yeah. And I wish I didn't have to say this, but they're black children. Yeah, wish we could say they're children, but this movie makes a point of they're black children. Uh, for this part of the movie, they decide that he must be Swingali. And then, cue musical number, Swingali, in the style of All God's Children, got rhythm from A Day of the Races. We have a bunch of black people singing the song, and it's it's a fun sequence. I really do yeah. enjoy it. And it ends with them carrying Harpo. And Harpo was a little, uh, he was a little undemonstrative during the sequence because he had hurt his shoulder earlier in the filming when he fell off an ostrich. And so his shoulder was sore, so he couldn't lift his left arm uh, without a little bit of exertion. So he did a lot of gesturing with his right, but not using his left arm very much during this sequence. Uh, But at the end of it, he is carried over to his harp, where then he performs uh, a solo version of Blue Moon, which is interesting because up to this point in the movies, he tended to do a 
harp reprise of the main song of the film. Yes, that's right. And so this movie, it introduces a, a song that wasn't part of, in the movie, Blue Moon, uh, which was an older song, about seven years old at this point, when the yeah. movie was made. And it's a nice version of it, though. I really do like how he does it. And he brings a kind of a, a, a jazzy sort of version to it as well. It's nice. Is one of the women singing blue moon like she she sings something well they do sing she sings something they sing in the, the background they sing well, in the background yeah there's a chorus that yeah, sings right. along yeah yeah, yeah that's right. okay because all, all the black people are watching yeah and they have a bit of a chorus singing with with him to add a little bit of color to the yeah well, that sounded terrible i didn't mean that as a bad pun but to add a bit of you yeah know, add a bit of interest to the song it's uh yeah again it's it makes more sense that it's own unique uh number because again i feel like this is him stepping into a different world. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, then then we go back to the other. Yeah, I do like that. I do like that. We now find ourselves, oh joy, at the home of Mrs. Dukesbury. Oh, good. Where the lovely lady is chatting on the phone to a friend. And just full Dumont. Just full Dumont. We learn. We have the big thing that's going on. <laughs> Woo! It's great. Yes. Yeah. It's great exposition. Yeah. We don't need a newspaper to Doesn't tell us. Doesn't matter. She's doing it. That she's hosting a party. Perfect. With Big entertainment snob. from Monsieur Jardinet and his orchestra. Fanciest, fanciest. Who have come all the way from Paris. Sure have. She has only invited the cream of the crop of Newport, the 400. Newport 400. That's right. No outsiders, she says. That's right. Speaking of outsiders, Lupole arrives at the door, brusquely talking aside a no agents or solicitors sign. Yes. Doesn't it almost seem like you could start the movie there? Yeah. And it would That's be a, it. That's the start. Yeah. Just like. Because this part of the movie is 100% better. I mean, not, I shouldn't say 100%, because yeah. there's still some good sequences. I do like, I, I do, even though I think that it could have been slightly better, I do like the, the, the rainy badge sequence. Like, I do enjoy that sure, sequence. Sure, there's a it's lot fun. of good stuff, but. I like the Professor Adam part of the movie. There's lots of good gags and throughout it. I do like, like when, um, when Goliath threatens to break Lupul in half. He says, can I fire se- file separate tax returns? Like, I guess it's a dumb joke, but I like it. I yeah. like the way he says it. But like Groucho throwing the sign away. Yeah. That's pure Groucho. Yeah, yeah. He's just going through the butler. Yeah. He's just playing a con. Sure. He's just going through. Like, here's here's what Margaret Dumont is, is she's the stiff. <laughs> and you need the stiff to play against the Marx Brothers, yep. especially Groucho. Yep. And the other people just aren't aren't the stiff. Yeah. And so now that it's like, oh, there's a hard wall that you can bounce this great rubber ball against yeah. and now the ball's just bouncing like crazy and like now we're on board well but that but i mean they are the stiffs like the strong man is dumb and could be your gangster character it could be the oh yeah yeah well groucho out out talks him and out maneuvers him through his verbal ability you know and and just you know just confuses right. everything and muddles everything and we don't really get that we don't get a fast-talking lawyer which is what he's supposed to be yep you know, and I think that's missing from the beginning of the film. This part of the movie, we get Groucho, Groucho though. He comes in. He lies. He says he's the, the long depart, the, the supposedly dead husband. No, he's not, not dead at all. You know, he's, uh, I can't remember what joke he says at that yeah, moment. No, isn't, but, wouldn't it, again, like just logically, yeah. wouldn't it make like a lot more sense to just go, I'm the lawyer for, whatever it is. Yeah. Now you get in as a lawyer. No solicitors. I, I understand. That's why he tossed the sign away. Yeah, because he is a solicitor. Yeah, so he can he can come in and just go like, "I'm the lawyer representing da 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 da." Yeah. Oh, you don't want to stop me because I'm gonna you'll you'll get sued, and I don't want you to get sued. Listen, yeah. I got to go talk to her because this is gonna be big trouble. Yeah. Now you got a reason to go in instead of saying I'm her husband. Yeah. You know, it's like, are okay? You could do that, or you could do the thing that you are. But he does start with immediate familiarity. He walks in yes. and goes Snookums. Yes. You know, and then accuses her of forgetting him and 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 all that. Um. So yes, 
So he begins to, I, I said in here, that he begins to woo her with gusto. Yeah, it's great. Which is Those two thing. are a great team, and <laughs> bam, 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 bam. It's all good. Uh, Mrs. Dukesbury is astounded by his behavior until, after intercepting a message from Monsieur Fontaine from the butler, he pretends to be Fontaine. Fontaine. Monsieur Fontaine. Fontaine is from the concert bureau, acting on behalf of the world-famous conductor, Monsieur Jardinet. Sure. Lupin wonders if she would be open to other forms of entertainment should Jardinet fail to appear. He also raises the fee from $7,500 to a neat 10000 And I like him describing to, the conversion rate. Yes. Doing a good bit about right. that. Yeah, that's nice. He's being a con man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That works. Though that really feels like that would be a Chico bit in another movie. Yes. Yes, you're right. Well, yeah. yes and no. Yeah, because like, well, it's $10,000. It says yeah, seventy five. Yeah. Well, you got a, the conversion rate. But I'm thinking of the scene that was going to be in A Day of the, Ra- a Day of the Races where uh, Groucho double talks... Um, Harpo and and Chico into thinking because of time time the time differences that they're still in New York ah uh, okay and so that has a kind of related to that as well and sure. so there is that that kind of tr- tricky double talk that that and that was at his instigation he wanted that sequence in the film mm-hmm. so um yeah it's you know kind of plays to his character I mean his character was kind of was was changing or it's kind yeah. of transformed over time so so we're having fun Margaret Dumont Groucho great stuff what's happening with Jeff and Julie. <laughs> That's what we want to know. That's what we want to know. We want to know that they're on the train. Uh-huh. They're going. They're racing through the night on the train, and he's sad because he's going to soon lose the circus, and she will be going to perform with a different company. And so they sing a sad version of Two Blind Loves." Yeah, it's great. Uh-huh. it's too bad. Yep, we're never going to get that time back. Moving on. But let's go to a great scene. Okay. Which is Tony and Punchy in their bunks on the train, and of course they're just lowly circus employees, so they get the hallway uh, births. Births, yeah. That sort of kind of stack on top of each other, where people could just walk through the aisle. Way. I have a very strong memory of being on one of those, and 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 the train took a turn. I rolled out. Oh wow! Uh, I was in the top. Yeah. I rolled out. Yeah. And I woke up in midair. <laughs> <laughs> and That's this is all I remember. Feeling. As I woke up, yeah. I went like, yeah. "Oh no!" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bam! And wow. just hit the ground. That happened to me in a boat one time when I. I I was in such such waves that and I'm a deep sleeper, so I very rarely, rarely wake yeah. up. But I was being lifted up in the air so high that I woke up from the impact, and I woke up in the air, yeah. and then fell back down into the bunk. And I was like, "Whoa, is it ever?" Yeah. Stormy? Did you think for a second maybe I levitate in my sleep? I don't know. I did not. <laughs> I mean, you really got you, you should set a camera up. <laughs> I did not. Okay. I did not. I didn't wake up. I was I was that awake. I guess that I was my all the fear that was in me woke me up really quickly. Mm-hmm. There's no no. Tiredness. Yeah, nothing so, wakes you up like being in midair. Yeah. So uh, Tony and Punchy, uh, Tony can't sleep because he's so worried about the money. Right. Punchy's fine. Also, he's too dumb. He has a <laughs> too dumb to sleep. He has a, he has a sheep in his bunk with him, so he can count it to go That's to sleep. That's right. That's adorable. <laughs> yes. And again, because he's magic. Yes. And he talks to animals. <laughs> that really is the subtext in this. Yeah. That he talks to animals. Yeah. Clearly. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, they decide to go and search Goliath's birth. They quietly sneak into Goliath's cabin. <laughs> he's asleep in his bed. Uh, he's in a bunk, so there's a top and bottom. Punchy threatens to hit him with a sap, making enough noise that Goliath begins to awaken. So Tony has to sing Rockabye Baby to him, and that lulls him back to sleep, which is nice. Tony's soothing Italian accent. They seem incapable of searching the room without making a lot of noise. Uh, for instance, Punchy plays a harmonica and also a tin flute. Uh, they decide they're going to search through Goliath's feather pillow. Uh, Punchy accidentally turns on a fan, uh, and uh, Tony has cut the pillow and is ser- searching through, yeah. the, through the feathers. So now the fan is on, and so the room begins to fill with all this uh, fans and stuff like that. By the way, that feels unnecessary, right? If you had a pillow 
and you had like a box and a pillow, you could feel if a box was in a pillow. There's yeah. no need to slice open the pillow. But but we got some great stuff of we do of uh, punchy uh, pretended ice skate yeah. in the in the feathers, and then he dresses as Santa Claus and rings Sa- a bell. Sa- sanity Claus. Sanity yeah. Claus. That's yeah. right. And rings a bell. Yeah. And. Uh, and so, and, and, and yeah, and uh, Tony puts a little money in the, yeah, uh, yeah, the chamber yeah, pot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they decide to keep Goliath sleeping. Tony decides he's going to mix a glass of water with some handful of sleeping pills, which Punchy drinks, yeah. and falls asleep on the floor. So then Tony's trying to wake him up without waking up Goliath, and that's great because he's of course supposed to splash water on his face, and he splashes it on Goliath's face, <laughs> and he has to sing uh, "Rocket by Baby" to him. And then they decide they're going to search the the mattress. So Punchy cuts a hole in the mattress and craw- crawls inside underneath Goliath. <laughs> and then finally a sleepy Goliath wakes up. Uh, Tony has climbed up. Oh, and there's also a sequence where uh, they turn off the lights and then Goliath turns on the lights and then um, Punchy's hanging from the doorway in the coat, wearing the coat. Okay. He's hanging from like the door, wearing coat, and then Tony's up above in the bunk. Okay, yeah. That's, that's like the, earlier okay, on yeah. in the sequence. I really like that part. But, um, oh yeah, so then Goliath wakes up. He throws the mattress up on top of the bed, on top of Tony, then climbs up there. And then, of course, he gets the honking from Punchy's horn. And then uh, Tony's, this disembodied voice of Tony singing Rockabye Baby to him. <laughs> and he panics and leaves the leaves the berth because he's also dumb. Uh, so Punchy has accidentally eaten a wad of feathers. And he kind of spits them out when Tony pats him on the back. It is amazing because it actually just was feathers in his mouth. I don't know. Yeah. It, it was the only time in the film that they had to actually call a doctor because when... Uh, when Harp uh, Chico punt, slapped him on the back, uh, he accidentally swallowed some of the feathers. Oh. So, so I had to call a doctor in to help. It was a, it was amazing effect. Just, yeah, it just yeah, it just comes way big out. Yeah. Bursts of feathers, yeah. like three of them. I was mm-hmm. like, how did how do you do that? Yeah, no, it's good. Well, I'm sorry, you had to swallow feathers. Well, you know, you got to. I went like, that's amazing and so gross. No pain, no gain. Yes, just no, imagine having gross. a mouthful of feathers. Yes, right, it is gross. Ah, oh. have a really dry mouth. Uh, cut. To the train arriving at the station, watched by the clerk in the office, he calls for Jeff to come to the phone. Uh, Lupo is calling Jeff to have him bring his circus to Dukesbury uh, Manor to fill in for Jardinet, who most likely won't be able to make Mrs. Dukesbury's party. Lupo has arranged a $10,000 payment for the performance. And I like when Jeff hangs up the phone and just looks off in the distance and goes, Oh boy! <laughs> like, go away! Uh, Lupo will picks up the phone and calls the steamship Normandy to have the captain arrest Jardinet because he's the leader of a dope ring, which surprised <laughs> me. You can say a dope ring in this movie, but you can't have, you can't have like some, you know, have some goofy fun with a, a woman's uh, bosom and, and a wallet. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Where do you think you keep the dope? <laughs> uh, Mrs. Dukesbury shows Loophole a floating bandstand that she had built for Jardinet and his orchestra. Okay. This is a great setup. Good setup. 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 Set set I like it. I like it. The next night. It seems realistic. It seems like you could sure, see that. You can do that. Yeah. She's got lots of money. Yeah. Money to burn. I mean, uh, there was Mrs. Vanderbilt. I believe she had like an entire Chinese pagoda or Japanese pagoda or not pagoda, but a Japanese tea house built by actual Japanese workers in her garden. So, you know, the idea of building a floating sure. bandstand is not, not much different than that because she wanted a place to have, to have tea, to serve tea. So she had like an entire tea house built on her property. Right. Uh, you know, just that's what you do. Yeah. You got too much money. If you have too much money. Like nowadays, if you're that rich, you go, I should go into space. Yeah. Uh, but back then, space wasn't an option. No, so you built right. a tea house. You built a tea house. Uh, the next night, Mrs. Dukesbury enters the large dining room with Loophole. Oh, sorry. While Loophole counts the 400 guests 
And he counts right to 400 and says, they all showed up. Looks like no second helpings. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Lupo makes a speech for Mrs. Dukesbury and introduces her to speak. But every time she goes to talk, an elephant roars. <laughs> yes. Uh, she's finally able to make her short speech. But as she suggests that everyone begin to make their way outside to the bandstand, Chico pokes his head in the window and motions for more time. So Lupo makes everyone sit down again so he can have some more coffee. Meanwhile, a worried Carter instructs his henchmen, including Goliath, to sabotage the show. One of the henchmen is trying to knock out the ten pegs with a sledgehammer when he is discovered by Jeff. They begin to fight. Punchy rides to the rescue on an ostrich (laughs) and mysteriously knocks the bad bad guy out with the soft squeeze end of his horn. So he just kind of bops him with it. Okay, yeah. And that's the guy who falls over. Okay, unconscious. now had, we've, we've established the horn already because the horn was in the bed because mm-hmm. the horn honked. Yeah. Yeah, the, the horn, horn becomes, yeah, it, fe- it feels like the A horn's magical magic. device. Like yeah. everything just becomes magic at this point with yeah. him. Like yeah. just completely magic. Yeah. And I was wondering like, how's he How's he riding an ostrich? Just like, oh, he's just riding an ostrich. He's just right, actually was riding an ostrich. Yeah, he was riding yeah. an ostrich. Yeah. Yeah, you could Harpo do that. Harpo was riding it and, act- and he also fell off and hurt his shoulder yeah. during, during the filming. Though... That he was still riding an ostrich. It's yes, amazing. It's crazy. I thought like, oh, there's a way you're faking this. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope. It's a real ostrich. There's no CGI. Then you actually had to ride a real ostrich. Oh well, I'm sure you could build. Okay, listen, it's a fake gorilla, so there could be a thing yeah. where like you have your legs in the ostrich. Oh, okay. And then your legs are off the side. Pretty, and you can do some bits. pretty not convincing though. This is a real ostrich. I have not and, seen the fake version, so I could let not me just tell, tell you. you. Let me tell you, freaky legs on ostriches that freaky are amazing legs. can hold up a man. Yeah. They're big birds. I know. They're incredibly strong. Yeah. People, sorry, just a, a brief side. There was a brief period of time where quite a few people thought it was a good idea to raise ostriches for meat. Yes. And that was like the big thing. And I knew someone who was going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then they got some ostriches. No. They're <laughs> incredibly strong. Yeah. You do not, when you want to like raise meat, yeah. you want an animal that's smaller than you or docile as a cow. Sure. You do not want an angry giant bird no. that that's, could that's take right. you out. That's why they. That's why they use it all the time in those Warner Brothers cartoons where Sylvester keeps getting beaten up by a by a chicken. His son is so disappointed. Oh, father! The shame of it. <laughs> so yes, he then rides to the aid of Tony, who has discovered two men trying to start a fire. Once again, Punchy mysteriously knocks the men out with a slight tap from the soft end of his horn. Yes, and Tony is able to stop on the fire with the help of a blast of water from Punchy's magical horn. See, I said yeah, magical too. That's right. Punchy then with. He's really happy to find this. Finds that the ostrich has laid an egg. Yeah. Meanwhile, Goliath and Carter search the circus. They come across Punchy and the ostrich with their heads in the sand. Upon being challenged by Goliath, Punchy throws the giant egg in his face. Also, meanwhile... By the way, that was a very uh, whipped creamy egg. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Good effect. Uh, Lupole is onto his seventh cup of, of coffee, stalling for the signal that the show is ready to go. Once yeah, again... He's just pounding the coffee. Yeah. Just as Mrs. Dukeberry announces that they will proceed outside, Tony asks for more time. Yeah. Loophole decides... It's a good idea to to show him drinking so much coffee because now he's so hyperactive as well. So this all works. Like, you're just building the energy. (laughs) Sure. At this moment, Jardinet arrives, having escaped Loophole's trap for him on the boat, (laughs) and is outraged to have found a circus being set up on the grounds of Mrs. Dukeberry's mansion. Uh The guy who played uh, Jardinet, Fritz Feld, his name was... Uh, had a small role in had a small role in Bring Up Baby, which is a classic okay, great yeah. movie. But I think we can all agree that his greatest role was in the masterpiece, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. What did he, he play in that? Professor Van Dyke in that movie. Very good. Part of the trilogy 
of, of Kurt Russell films. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, now you see him. Now, now you now don't. You, now you don't. Yep. And uh, what was the other one? The world's strongest, strongest, the strongest man. man in the world. I think it was called. Yeah. Strongest was the strongest man in the world. The strongest teen in the world. I'm, strongest something in the yeah, world. Yeah, it was strongest something in the world. I can't yeah. remember if it's teen or man. Sorry. And they had he's that sort of, principal who he's said that to the whole thing. That's I don't right. like you. Yeah, that guy. He's uh, he would have to be man because he was a college student. He wasn't a high school student. So he's he's still a, he's a man, not a teenager. We advise you after this episode to look that up. Yes, please do. But we're still in the middle of the Marx Brothers film yeah, right now. We're not so going to concern go. ourselves. We're not going to concern ourselves that with those. That would actually those. be a pretty good podcast to just do those three movies, and then we're done in three. That'd be fun. Instead of doing this thing that we do, we're just like a huge <laughs> series of movies. What were we you know, thinking? when we get lazy, we'll just do <laughs> trilogies. Sure, I, I wouldn't uh, okay, mind doing that. All right, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that. We could do two different trilogies to look at. Yeah. And that would this be another huge <laughs> Yeah. Loophole intentionally misunderstands Journey's cries of animals, animals as an insult to Mrs. Dukesbury and her guests and takes advantage to hustle Jardinet out of the room. Loophole directs Jardinet to the bandstand. Tony arrives to let Loophole know that everything is ready to go. So Loophole instructs Tony to accompany Jardinet to the bandstand and give him a big send-off. Yeah. He says. Wink. As she excitedly prepares for Prepares her guests for the concert. Mrs. Dukesbury is interrupted by a calliope. The curtains are open to the patio, revealing that the tent was set up over part of the house because they're staring from the house directly into the big top. Yeah, they destroyed the house. Yeah. They <laughs> this is a house. very expensive circus. We have we have taken out at least a couple of walls of your house. Yeah. As she, <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uh, Tony instructs Jardinet. To begin conducting the orchestra and gives Punchy the nod to cut the rope tethering the bandstand to the dock. The bandstand begins to float away. An outraged Mrs. Dukesbury is upset that Jeff has set up the circus on her lawn to humiliate her in front of her guests. Loophole explains that he was afraid that Jardinet would not be able to make it and had Jeff bring his circus as a stand-in. He also points out that the Newport 400 are actually enjoying the circus. Right. We, lucky viewers, get a reprise of Step Up and Take a Bow <laughs> with Jeff as the trainer... And Julie playing the horse in the sequence. And this is when I noticed that Julie's costume with its long skirt is a good example of what the Hayes office had brought to Hollywood. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Dukesbury, enjoying the show, is enjoying the show, but is concerned about Jardinet. Loophole comforts her, saying he's probably on his way back to Paris. We get a little shot, a little cut to uh, the tiny bandstand floating out past the points of the shore. As they play, the orchestra floats past a steamship. Mrs. Dukesbury is roundly cheered by her guests. And she prepares to make a speech. Carter, refusing to be beaten, opens Gibraltar, the gorilla's cage. This is after Goliath yeah. is having no more of this. This is too far. Yeah. This is dangerous. You're going to get someone killed, he says. I guess you're right. They are scared of this gorilla. But I feel like Gibraltar knows who the, the villain of this piece is, and yeah. that's Carter. The strong man is terrified yes. of the gorilla. <laughs> the gorilla. <laughs> and we've seen this guy lift 3,000 pounds over his head. <laughs> An angry Gibraltar. Machine. An angry Gibraltar. Well, I don't think so. Otherwise, we'd see really? some real. An angry Gibraltar begins to chase Carter, who raises up some ropes and takes refuge on a trapeze. A surprise loophole accidentally knocks Mrs. Dukesbury into the mouth of a cannon. Yes. There is a bunch of business with Punch. Well, Punchy climbs up to the top of the circus tent and also climbs onto a trapeze. Loophole helpfully ignores a stuck Mrs. Dukesbury to begin some color commentary. Yes. That's what you want him to do. The gorilla also climbs onto a trapeze and continues to chase down Carter. Carter climbs onto Punchy's trapeze, knocking him off. Punchy hangs from Carter's legs as they swing in the air. 
Tony attempts to rescue Mrs. Dukesbury, but accidentally <laughs> steps on a lever, firing Mrs. Dukesbury up in the air. <laughs> she is able to grab onto Punchy, so she, Punchy, and Carter are all hanging from one trapeze. Pretty good. Tony climbs up to rescue her again. Unfortunately, as he attempts to grab her, he has pulled off the platform and finds himself hanging from Mrs. Dukesbury. Her skirt slips off, and Tony yeah. falls, landing on a gymnast seesaw, throwing loophole up in the air where he is able to grab onto a free trapeze. He hangs upside down, calling for help. Because he as, doesn't like being upside down. No, he doesn't. As they swim back and forth, Loophole grabs onto Mrs. Dukesbury's legs, creating a bridge in the air that allows Gibraltar to cross to Carter. As he crosses over Punchy, a tickless Punchy lets go of Carter and Loophole. Mrs. Dukesbury and Punchy are now swinging in the air from one trapeze, while Gibraltar has a hold of Carter on the other. Jeff and some circus employees, including Goliath, it's sort of his little moment of, of redemption, Yeah, have a safety net which they hold under the trapeze. Punchy drops to safety, followed by a reluctant Mrs. Dukesbury, and finally Loophole drops down, uh, holding his nose as if he's plunging into water. By the way, a little earlier, yep. scene I liked uh, sure. was uh, was Dumont and uh, Groucho sharing a uh, Oh, coke. a drink, yeah. Yeah, a little Coke with the two straws. That's nice. Very yeah, sweet. Right. Very sweet, yes. That is nice. A very commoner thing to do, and she's just enjoying being a commoner mm-hmm. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Carter is still in the hands of Gibraltar, slips out of his jacket, and falls to safety. Gibraltar finds the wallet in Carter's jacket and begins to contentedly count the $10,000. Yes. The film ends with a shot of the orchestra playing away on the bandstand as it floats out to sea. For them which is a to great, die. A great <laughs> ending, though. It's such a great ending, yes. though. You don't have to think about it like that. Who cares? Well, Who cares no, about an orchestra? They're a bunch of snobs. That's right. We're not going to miss them. There's plenty of orchestras out there. <laughs> Seems like you've thought about it a lot, too, here. But I feel like... That is a great... It's one of the best endings to a Marx Brothers film. Yep. You know, like, despite the greatness of Monkey Business and, and, and Horse Feathers and, and those movies, they, they never captured an image quite as surreal as that of a bandstand of a full orchestra <laughs> playing <laughs> Beethoven as they float yep. out to sea. Yep. It is really great. So, yeah. Um, you know, this movie does have its problems. And its problems are, you know, I remember when we were doing Night of the Opera and I would hem and haw over things and I would say, it's going to come back to haunt us. And that's what I meant. You know, there's elements of the Marx Brothers that changed through these films. You know, as, as less skillful writers took over the, the characters, they changed them in ways that, you know, they put them more into situation comedy. So, and that's how movies were changing, really, anyway. What once started as character-based comedy became situation comedies, where right. you could have any actor in that role. You didn't need funny actors to be in The More the Merrier or whatever. You could just have three actors who, you know, were competent actors, and they would play out the funniness of the situation. Not, they're not intrinsically funny. They're not W.C. Fields. They're not the Marx Brothers. They're not Laurel and Hardy. The funniness is from the situation. And what the Marx Brothers did was different. But we see their movies becoming more like a situation comedy where the situation is funny, and they are not funny necessarily. But So it's a weird marriage of the, their comedy with this sort of changing film style. I still... But... This movie, like you say, if you go in with, with low expectations, it's surprisingly good. And very charming. It's here's, very- here's another element that feels like uh, it's a little missed by the end. Is you're releasing the gorilla, and uh, the gorilla's got a good scene at the end, or what have you. Yeah. It almost feels like I want a little bit more of uh, like a little Harpo and the gorilla. Because he, he, he interacts with every other animal, yeah, yeah. you know, pretty much. Sure. And a uh, little something where... They get just something. I don't or know they what get it would each be. other. They, they get, get each, each other. other. Yeah. Just like you know, he's not gonna. He's not ever gonna go after Harpo. Yeah. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah. You know. Or we just discover that there should be a little sequence in there where we, we realize that the ape isn't really da- the gorilla isn't really dangerous. 
mm. that he's mad at Carter. Yeah, and we can have that. Carter is screwing up the circus. That's right. And he's he's, and he's, he's a witness pro, to the crime. He's pro circus. That's right. He's a witness to the. What's crime. that you say? Oh, he saw he saw it happen. Yeah. Well, he's a witness. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, uh, and then you got like Groucho, whose only witness is a is an ape. Sure. It's like okay, as a lawyer, play yeah. that up. What so are you going to do? What you could have had was say Harpo slip and almost fall, and the ape grab him and lift him to safety, mm-hmm. and then continue on after Carter. You know what I mean? Like something like that, where we get a sense of that he's not a. He's not malevolent. He's just angry at this person. That's right. Or or uh, the uh, apes coming to get Harpo, but like the seal barks at him, and the, and the apes all messed <laughs> up about the seal. And it's like, okay, now we know that you sure. know this guy's lord, I, or even the lions. Yeah, because Harpo is definitely yeah the lord of the lions. I don't think we want to bring too much into the sequence, though, because I think it's already enough stuff happening that we yeah. don't want too many cutaways. Uh, I think but it, Harpo's magic and can talk to animals. I think they do pretty good. Scene. I mean, the special effects in that sequence are pretty lame like the way margaret dumont flies out of the cannon onto the thing it's in no way an arc it's basically like an upward slope like yeah. a sl- like you know but that's just a special effects it's of the all time. just to have yeah her going yeah, Ooh! yeah it's, it's fine it's all fine what do you prefer trapeze wise uh night at the opera or this trapeze wise because there's trapeze yeah there's some involved. stuff in uh, i think the sequence is i like the sequence better than the than the i mean i do like the night of the opera sequence i think it's really great but if we're just talking about like the rope action i think it's better in 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 at the circus and uh, again we seem to be living in an era where everyone can climb a rope very quickly very quickly yeah 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 but i mean the overall scene at the end of night of the opera is better you know like i just the the backdrop changing and falling down and stuff like that is all is all great quick uh, quick aside could you climb a rope in gym class yes you could climb to the top yep most people could not in my in my class. It was just a thing like, well, mm. no, this is impossible and crazy. Why would yeah. you even ask this? Yeah. But back in the day, or to you, you can climb a rope. So good on you. I, a- anyone out there who can climb a rope also, good for you. I played a, uh, I played a lot of uh, physical activity games. That involved rope climbing? It involved a lot of climbing, yeah. yeah. I played a game called House Tag where we would play in, old, in, in houses that were being built. We played complicated games that involved running over rafters and sliding down the side of the wall and jumping through windows and stuff like that. It was a very dangerous and stupid game that we played as teenagers. Sounds very Buster Keaton-y. Yes, probably why I like Buster Keaton so much. Nice. All right. So, uh, any final thoughts on uh, on the movie, or have you well, summed me, it up? Let me it sound like you were. Let me rank well. this. Let me rate this movie. All right, you rank it. I'm, I'm not going to rank them, but uh, I'm going to give this no. movie. Well, you know, it's, I can't even remember what I gave movies. So I, I just, it's all, it's all, it's hard for me to give relative to each other. But yeah. in terms of uh, MGM movies, um, Night of the Opera was a nine. Um, you know what? Let's let's make it a ten. No, let's not make it a ten. I'm gonna keep it a nine. Um, but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give seven rings to uh, to At the Circus. Okay, very good. I enjoyed it that much. I really did. And like I'll admit that I went in with low expectations, and I changed what I wanted from it. You know, I didn't. I you know I decided that okay, it's not gonna be one of the Paramount ones, which you know are my favorite Marx Brothers films. I like I love all those movies, but I like them because of their craziness. Yeah, I like them because they're just zany, nutty movies. These movies aren't. These movies are are changing with the times, and and I have to just live with that fact. But you know, I did. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed you know Groucho's jokes. The 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 one liners and stuff that he had are great. I thought the movie had good sequences. I thought the badge sequence was great. I thought the the strongman. You know the searching the room sequence was great. Again, I love uh, the Lydia. The song. yeah, Lydia. The Lydia. The and it's Lady very is a great song. song. Sure, everyone dancing and yep. and picking up the tables and using them as parasols. Sure, just joyful and nice confined. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, number. I didn't like all the musical sequences, but I like the Swingali sequence. Mm-hmm. I like 
Chico playing piano. I liked, I really liked Harpo's harp sequence. Blue Moon. Yeah. Blue Moon is a, you know, it's a song that I know. And so it's fun to hear his interpretation of it. Uh, well, you also knew the beer barrel polka as well, right? Yeah. And that's fun too, yeah. of course. But often we hear like the Harpo songs. We just know them from the movie. We don't know them as a separate song. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to hear him, you know, play around with the, the song. Yeah. And I think the ending of this movie is great. It's great fun. You know, and I think once, once, uh, Grocho shows up in, in Newport, at uh you know mrs dukesbury's place or miss uh the movie goes up like goes yep. up a, a gear which is great because it's gonna you know it's the end of the movie so it goes up a gear without it being like feeling rushed or hurried or antic or too much it just really works you know and yeah i do wonder if it would have it would have been better to have her at the top of the film with uh, the, her nephew, mm-hmm. I guess, just like, you know, no nephew of mine's going to blah, 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 or whatever the heck it is, but just like setting it. Because it is weird that she just shows up like later on. Yeah. 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 But, uh, nope, I'm, uh, I'm all for it. I think a nice, uh, rebound back after, uh, room service. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm on board. I'm going to lower my expectations for the next time. Uh, please do. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Now, what film are we uh, talking about next time? Next film is going to be Go West. Oh, very good. Which is also the name of a Buster Keaton film. And also the name of a Village People album. That's true. Yep. Because they're such they're big Buster Keaton fans. Yeah, I often get the Village People and Buster Keaton confused. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Who, who, did, who did the YMCA thing? Because both of them would be great there. Well, that was Village People as well. Yeah, but Buster Keaton at the YMCA. Oh, YMCA. Oh, man, you could get a lot of fun stuff from him at the YMCA, right? Like, you'd have yeah. a lot of shtick to do at the YMCA. It's a guy who's just, like, yeah, staying yeah. there. I wonder. He could have a good time. He could have a good meal. He could do whatever he feels. Because there's uh, Battling Butler, where he plays a boxer. Ah. And I wonder if you can kind of incorporate sort of a YMCA. Are you situation. saying that what we should do is we should do mashups of the village people and Buster Keaton right now? Because I I'm think we're... Is- we're on it. We're on it. Yeah, we got some spare time. We got some. Yes, that's right. We do whatever. What else we have? You're to not. Do? You know, you're you're getting too much sleep. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get that going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As always, we love to hear from you. If you have uh, anything that we've missed or want to add to the conversation, we'd uh, love to hear it, and we might bring it up in a future show. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to contact us, best way to do that is through our other podcast's information pages, and that is the Sneaky Dragon podcast. That's where we talk about our lives and whatever is on our minds. So you can check that out as well. But that's why everything we're going to say now has Sneaky Dragon in it. So if you go to SneakyDragon.com, you will find uh, uh, our episodes of this show. And yep. underneath those will be message boards. You can comment directly on there, or mm-hmm. go, or go to uh, you know the email, which is uh, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, or Twitter a sneaky underscore dragon. Comment, comment, comment. Uh, and uh, we always like it when uh, you give us a little shout out on iTunes. It really helps us out to find yes. uh, a new audience to bring in. And those of you who have written reviews, we do appreciate it. You can be honest. It's fine. We're we're cool with that. Yep. Uh, but but again, if you're asking how can we help, uh, that's the way you can help. And again, we love uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, yes, I we think... really I really loved getting comments from people. Yes, I've really enjoyed all the emails we're getting with full of uh, fulsome praise for the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the iTunes reviews have it's all been, been great very well. very delightful. Yes. So thank you so much, and we will be back next time uh, with Go West. See you then. Mm-hmm.